Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Ben Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 94th episode of the Nauticast, titled Summer Nights, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 2, in which Catelyn arrives at the traveling court of the rightful king of Westeros, Renly Baratheon, first of his name, who makes her a, <laughs> a reasonable proposal before Stannis, ruins everything as usual, just, just because he's, he's so jealous. Okay, Emmett, I've said the words you wrote for me, Emmett, will you now release my family? And no. why did you make me speak that treason aloud? Because I could, buddy, just for the sheer joy of it. Thankfully, I once again don't have to deal with Jeff on my own in this chapter. We are very excited to welcome to the Nauticast Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me. So happy to be here with you guys today. One of my favorite chapters for one of my favorite people. We've been uh, yeah. waiting to have you on for a while. Jeff always likes to say we you know, stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of talking a song of ice and fire. And what you folks do at Radio Westeros is, is top of the heap in that regard. So we've been oh, looking forward to it. Thank you so much. It's very kind. Uh, of course, thank you for saving this chapter for me. Uh, like I said. <laughs> but of course. I said earlier, it's, it was well worth the wait. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about here. It's such a great chapter, but it's also going to be made all the more greater because you're on. Like you, like Emma was saying, we stayed on the shoulders of giants. But me specifically, individually, I remember coming on for some episodes with you guys way, way back in the day talk with you guys back in like 2015 and i'm like mm-hmm. wow it's like coming full circle like four years later we're like finally our own podcast and you're coming on for our podcast that's, yeah. that's special to me and so thank you guys very very that's... much people have been like oh i've heard you on ray westeros and i'm like oh good did i sound okay yeah but i mean but of course i did um because what you guys did in post-production everything like that. Uh, so, yeah. of course of course you did you were on some of our uh some of our greats you were you were with us and actually it was 2014 the oh, first wow. episode was our Stannis episode seven. Um, so we've been um, we've been at it since 2014, and we we're only on episode 51. <laughs> and here you guys are on number 94. Is that what you said? So, <laughs> well, we don't we don't have personalities. So that's no. just that's that's no. a different. Question. No, you do. Okay. You guys, it's, you guys are. It's very... mostly sad. You're, the, you're very hardworking. It's very um, sad, but thank you. So, yeah, no, you, it's really great to be joining you here for this. And, um, yeah, kind of being on the other side of this where, you know, with you, Jeff, uh, on our podcast, I'm happy to be joining you on yours. So. That's so much fun. So it's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council members, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Hill of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, War of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, the blue ringed octoling, Lord Jake assistant to the hand of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrigal, captain of the airship Arrogance, his gracious high inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the king's justice, Lawrence, prince of Dorne, Kelly, ward of the east and mistress of old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, master of hounds, the blue winter rose, knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the drowned god, 
King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer of Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Laura Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Day of the Day Des, and Gentle Dems, and our newest member of the Small Council, promoted from being a High Lord, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. I love it. I've longed for more drama among you people. It's so much fun. For, so. Form factions among yourselves and fight for my amusement. This is the best possible development. <laughs> You're basically like the, the emperor from Gladiator, just sitting up there watching as everyone dies below them, right? If, if you've ever read George R. R. Martin's Sand Kings, where he makes a bunch of insect creatures fight for his amusement and then they turn on him, <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> thank you all very much, Small Council, as always. Absolutely, thank you to our Small Council, and thank you to Clint for signing up as a Small Council member. We, we really appreciate it, and thank you With for your friendship. With no ulterior motives whatsoever. None at all. So our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsomere sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady Madeline Rivers, our High Lady, just a CR of the Trident, who asks, Hey boys, realized I've been a supporter for about four months now, but still haven't sent in a question. So here's one. What are some of the historical and or literary influences on A Song of Ice and Fire that you feel are not commented on as much by us in the fandom? We all know the influence of the Bible and archetypal myth in medieval England on A Song of Ice and Fire, but what are some other things you feel Martin is drawing really strongly from but don't really get time and spotlight on discussions of the series? As always, love and support to both of you, and we'd love to hear your answers in the show. Well, thank you so much for the question, Lady Madeline, and thank you for your support. And Jeff, what do you make of that? What are some kind of like underseen or under-argued or under-loved influences on A Song of Ice and Fire? Oh man, I was going to throw it over immediately to to Lady Gwyn because she has an excellent essay about the Arthurian influences on A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's funny when I I actually jotted an answer down to this question. I didn't even say that. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, there are uh, big Arthurian influences. Uh, Do have an essay and actually a patron episode um, all about that. Um, I was thinking of literature. Which actually mm-hmm. kind of allows me to lob it maybe back over to Emmett, but because uh, I'm sure he has a good answer for that one. But um, you know, literature is probably less talked about because it relies on the reader's specific knowledge of works of literature, whereas you know, with like myth, legend, uh, religion, stuff like that, is more archetypal and more broadly um, accessible to people. You know, people are are aware of them, so. Whereas it's kind of hit or miss if you have consumed specific works of literature. Hmm. Emmett? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, I think you can get into this game of what did what influenced Martin? What did he read? Do we know he read this? And that's a fun mm-hmm. game to play. But I think at some point you're like, okay, here's what I bring to the table as the person who's read <laughs> the books I've read. And here's what notice and stands out to me based on just the things you like. And for me, you know, we talk about the tone of A Song of Ice and Fire, what makes it different from a lot of fantasy. It's like, okay, well, it's not really full 90s grimdark in the way we think about it now looking back. Mm-hmm. But it, it really doesn't fit into the, the backlash era to that because A Song of Ice and Fire is still dark and, and miserable most of the time. <laughs> and so part of me feel like that tone, the certain kind of paranoia, like the weary paranoia that is, is a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire feels very 60s and 70s to me. It feels very like Pynchon, Vonnegut, Catch-22 
like like novels that were just like gigantic and took a look at everything at that big potential turning point in American culture and said, you know what, we're probably going to screw this up. Like, uh, or, or Don DeLillo or, you know, just a lot of like discontent and just exhaustion in the wake of the hippie dream. Or like a Inherent Vice is the Thomas Pynchon novel and was the movie made by Paul Thomas Anderson with Joaquin Phoenix. And just this era of like hope and promise dissipating is, is very strong in this chapter in particular. But I think in terms of how we talk about A Song of Ice and Fire within its genre, I think that tone is something that George brought to the table really well. This, this sense of kind of disaffection that I think is, is generational in a way that I think really influences how he looks at, uh, you know, archetypal myth in medieval England, to, to quote what Lady Madeline was working with. I agree. I think, like, we can bring our, like, individual things that we're, like, specifically interested in as readers of A Song of Ice and Fire and be like, yeah, George was inspired by this and I could talk a little bit about this. And, you know, I, I will say, and I will link this to our show notes for our patrons, but there's a great post by our friend Eliana from five years ago, which is a list of things that George R. Martin has cited as influences or sources of enjoyment for when you're talking about what influences Song of Ice and Fire. And it goes for everything from Turtles to J.R.R. Tolkien to things like historical events, Wars of the Roses, Hadrian's Wall, Battle of Constantinople, stuff like that. But the thing I'm going to, to single out here, which is a, a weird one, which of course has to be weird because I have to be unique and, and very mysterious, um, is, is the... Uh, You're is the, the prettiest, Jeff. We know. Continue. No, 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 no. We had this discussion earlier on Twitter. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to that offline. But... <laughs> <laughs> True. Uh, gosh, I Proceed. Fuck my line of thought up. Um, fuck, fuck my train of thought up. Um, it's, uh, it's the influence on sports on A Song of Ice and Fire and how, mm-hmm. like, the banners flapping in the breeze, which is a big part of this chapter we're going to talk about here in a little bit, and the the kind of, like, single-minded, like, almost stupid amount of patriotic fervor that goes in behind different houses and stuff like that. That's, that's just basically, you could call it, like, football hooliganism if you're in England, but George is more inspired by actual football, which is in America. American football, that's, that's George being a, a fan of the Giants and the Jets. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of, like, the, so the influence of sports is just really, I think, powerful in, in George's work. And it's not necessarily, like, this is obviously football or baseball inspired, but it's more, like, the emotions and the feelings that come with it of being like a passionate sports fan, being a passionate supporter of House Lannister, being a passionate, the special supporter of House Stark, right? This feels very much like, um, you know, it's like like being a fan of a sports team, like being a Baltimore Ravens fan, for instance, the number one seed for the AFC going into the uh, the playoffs. I want to note the artistry with which you wove actual football into there. <laughs> not a blink, not an eyebrow to place. He just kept going, just actual football, and we're just going to take that with us. Jeff doesn't even know when he drops his best gems. But no, I think that's actually completely relevant to this chapter because of how George stages it, like as a, as a big, you know, sports introduction yeah. for Brienne. Mm-hmm. And it's that particular sports fervor of projecting yourself into something that's happening so hard you feel like you belong to it, even though the team doesn't really care about you. That's mm-hmm. actually a great metaphor for Renly, like the, the owner of a pro sports team who benefits tremendously from you buying the banners and the ribbons and thinking you're on the team, but you're not actually on the team. <laughs> and yeah, I think George does... Uh, give you that sense of kind of that swell of feeling, but also that's a dissipate, like a sharp shock when you get to Catalan 4, which is really like kind of kind of the catharsis and payoff to a lot of what this chapter builds up. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Lady Madeline Rivers, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here in the Nauticast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, early access, and 23 bonus Song of Ice and Fire episodes, and four Fever Dream chapter-by-chapter episodes. 
Absolutely. But enough about Patreon. Let's turn our attention to Catelyn Stark, or as the Girls Gone Canon podcast would say, a mom with a job. When we last saw Catelyn, she was at Ripper Run watching as Rob the boy left his youth and took on the mantle of Rob the King. Let's find out what our mom is up to in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 2. And of course, when I do a synopsis, I try to summarize a chapter, but oh boy, this chapter is going to be super fucking hard to summarize, especially when it starts with such a wonderfully melancholic line. As she slept amidst the rolling grasslands, Catelyn dreamt that Bran was whole again, that Arya and Sansa held hands, that Rickon was still a babe at her breast. Rob, crownless, played with a wooden sword, and when they were all asleep, she found Ned in her bed, smiling. Sweet it was, sweet and gone too soon. Dawn came cruel, a dagger of light. She woke aching and alone and weary, weary of riding, weary of hurting, weary of duty. I want to weep, she thought. I want to be comforted. I'm so tired of being strong. I want to be foolish and frightened for once. Just just for a little small while. That's all. A day. An hour. <laughs> wow. Just soak in the way that George opens up this chapter. It's among Martin's best chapter openers in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. And the good writing doesn't end with the opening two paragraphs. Catelyn knows that her men are waking up outside of her tent. And Catelyn, well, she just wants them all to leave. Sure, they're good dudes, even loyal. But she doesn't want them. She wants her children. In a refrain echoed by every parent throughout all human history, Catelyn wonders whether she could be less strong just for a moment, but she realizes that she can. But not today. It could not be today. Catelyn clothes herself, her fingers stiff from the wound the Valyrian dagger gave her, but she realizes that she's grateful that she still has hands. That was something, at least. Outside, Wendell Bannerly asks if Catelyn wants some roast quail for breakfast. Nope. Sorry. She wants bread and oats. Everyone else will also have the same breakfast. They have a long way to go. Well, this causes Wendell Mannerly a bit of distress. He loves his food, and bread and oats is food for birds, birds that he'd rather eat. But still, he obeys orders. Another man in the party, Shad, states that he found some nettles to mix some tea. Does Catelyn want some? Absolutely. Mom is a tea-drinking gal. As she blows on the hot tea, we get an idea of the party that Rob sent with Catelyn. Rob had sent 20 of his best to see her safely to Renly. He had sent five lurlings as well, whose names and high birth would add weight and honor to her mission. The trip down had been, well, kind of scary, with Catelyn spotting marauders and smoke several times, but no one attacked her party as they were too weak to threaten them and too large to be easy pickings. And by the time they crossed the Blackwater, things had seemed safe. Still, Catelyn hadn't wanted this mission. She said as much to Rob back at River Run. She didn't really know Renly, and she really wanted to be with her father, Hoster. But Rob had no one else. He couldn't send the Blackfish, especially when they were planning on marching. Marching? Yes, marching. But where? Harrenhal? <laughs> no. But they're marching all the same. Rob can't wait around for peace to spring up or appear weak to his restless Northman. My Northman, Catelyn thought. He's even starting to talk like a king. Catelyn, back in the day, tried one last attempt to get Rob to stay safe, to caution him to wait for positive news from Lysa or somewhere else. But Rob is... Well, he's being kind of the smart one here, stating that if Lysa was coming to Rob's aid, she would have responded to the Ravens by now. Anyways, Mom, are you going to Renly, or is Rob going to have to send the Great John as an on, as an envoy? The memory brought a wan smile to Catelyn's face. Such an obvious ploy, that, yet deft for a boy of 15. Rob knew how ill-suited a man like Great John Umber would be to treat with a man like Renly Baratheon, and he knew that she knew it as well. So here she was traipsing about in the Reach in search of terrorist kings, hoping that Hoster would live long enough for her to see him before he died. When she bid her father goodbye, it had been especially sad with him forgetting her and only seeing Cat's bomb Vanessa. Wait for me, my lord, she said as his eyes closed. I waited for you, oh, so many times. Now you must wait for me. But it wasn't just her father Catelyn was thinking of. She wrote to Bran and Rickon the night before she left, 
telling them that she hadn't forgotten them. It was only... It was only that Rob needed her more at this moment. Oh boy, Cat. Sir Wendell breaks through Catelyn's memories to state that they'll make the Upper Manor River today, and that they'll find Renly somewhere around there. All well and good, but Catelyn still has no earthly idea what she'll say to Renly when she arrives. The rub is that they need friends, but Rob correctly doesn't think Renly is really the king. Thus, Catelyn has nothing to offer Renly that would bring him into alliance with Rob. But they mount their horses anyways and ride away with Hallamallen carrying the Stark Banner. About a half day from Renly's camp, Robin Flint spies one of Renly's lookouts up ahead. But when they ride up to the spot that Robin saw the man, he was long gone. So they press on, but only for a mile as 20 mounted men ride up onto them. A man wearing a surcoat with blue jay sigils running down the coat introduces himself as Sir Colin of Greenpools. Catelyn introduces off as, well, Catelyn, and says she's here as an envoy of Rob Stark, king in the north. Sir Colin's all like, fuck that shit. Renly's king in all the seven kingdoms. So he does. He says this a bit more politely, but it's kind of the same meaning what he says. Anyways, Sir Colin is going to, quote, escort Catelyn to Renly. But whether Catelyn is going as a guest or captive of Sir Colin is left ambiguous. She rides with him anyways, seeing no choice in the matter. From the distance, Catelyn sees smoke from all the campfires. Then there were the sounds that start low and roaring, but grew and grew as the party got closer and closer to the manor. Men's voices, the whinny of horses, steel on steel, but they weren't ready for what awaited them. Thousands of cook fires filled the air with a pale, smoky haze. The horse lines alone stretched out over leagues. A forest had surely been felled to pick all the tall staffs that had held the banners. Great siege engines lie in the grassy verge on the Rose Road. Mangonels and trebuchets and rolling rams mounted on wheels taller than a man on horseback. The steel points of pikes flamed red with sunlight, as if already blooded, while the pavilions of the knights and high lords sprouted from the grass like silken mushrooms. Catelyn sees spearmen, swordsmen, camp followers, archers, teamsters, swineherds, pages, squires, knights, riding grooms. It's a moving city or a massive army. They cross the stone bridge, a bitter bridge, and Catelyn witnesses the enormity of it all. Near all the chivalry of the south had come to Renly's call, it seemed. The golden rose of Highgarden was seen everywhere, sewn on the bright breast of armsmen and servants, flapping and fluttering from the green silk banners that adorned lance and pike, Painted upon the shields hung outside the pillions of the sons and brothers and cousins and uncles of House Tyrell. There were other banners too. There were the Florent Foxes, Fossilway Green and Red Apples, Tarly Striding Huntsmen, Oak Leaves for the Oak Hearts, Cranes for the, uh, Cranes, Black and Orange Butterflies for the Mullendors. And then there were the Stormlords on the other side of the river. Karen Nightingales, Penrose Quills, Estremont Turtles. But there were lots and lots of banners and shields she didn't recognize. But they had all swarmed around Renly to make him a king in fact as well as name. And what of our friend Renly and his banner? Renly's own standard flew high over all. From the top of the tallest siege tower, a wheeled oaken immensity covered with rawhides streamed the largest war banner that Catelyn had ever seen. A cloth big enough to carpet many a hall, shimmering gold with a crowned stag of Baratheon black upon it, prancing and tall. But then Hollis Mullen hears a noise and Catelyn hears it too. Shouts, cheers, horses. Catelyn and the party ride up the hill, finding more and more men pressing together. When they crest the hill, they find a melee in progress with stands, bleachers, banners, barriers. There were hundreds of people attending the melee, but seemingly the melee was nearing its conclusion as only 20 knights remained atop their horses. Catelyn and her friends observe knights crashing against one another, a rainbow-colored knight splintering another knight's shield and knocking him from his stirrups. But Catelyn can't go farther due to all the people around. So Sir Colin instructs her to wait, and then he'll present her to the king. Catelyn agrees and they watch as some idiot knight wearing griffins who Jamie will backhand with his golden hand later in a feast of crows gets knocked down before a quote knight in blue armor hmm who could this be maybe the heraldry gives us a clue it does his steel was deep cobalt and even the burnt it even the blunt morning star he whittled with such deadly effect 
is Mount Barded in the quartered sun and moon heraldry of House Tarth. Everyone, everyone bemoans that Red Bronner of the Ginger Dumbass got knocked down by some blue dot dot dot, but then the next word gets lost in the roars, another man and horse go down. This is madness, Catelyn thought. Real enemies on every side and half the Roman flames, and Renly sits here playing at war like a boy with his first wooden sword. Well, Catelyn isn't entirely wrong here, but she's not entirely correct. I'm sorry, I know my reprimand is a little bit slipping. We'll talk about this later on in the depth section. Catelyn observes that the lords and ladies were just as enamored with the melee as everyone on the ground, and Catelyn takes notes of each of them, remembering how her father had hosted them at River Run when she was a girl. Mathis Rowan was there along with Lady Oakheart. Randall Tarley was there with his lovely sword heartsbane slung across his back like an RPG fantasy character, and then there were others Catelyn knew from their sigils alone. And there were also others there that she did not know at all. In their midst, watching and laughing with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. Catelyn thinks that Renly looks like Robert come again. How handsome, long of limb, with that gorgeous, cool black hair, deep blue eyes, that smile, and... <sighs> but then there was the crown. The slender circlet around his brow seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought. At the front end lifted a stag's head of dark green jade adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. Renly was also wearing the crown stag sigil on his green velvet tunic, but the colors were a bit different. There was gold thread worked into the sigil, the Baratheon sigil in the colors of Highgarden, as Catelyn thinks. And to make the point all the more clear, there was the Tyrell queen sitting next to Renly, Queen Marjorie, first of her name, and first of her friend, Manuclear Bomb's heart, or at least Natalie Dormer's. Catelyn knows that the marriage cemented this great Southern alliance, but she also sees that Marjorie is quite fair with curly brown hair and a shy, sweet smile. But then we're back to the melee, another knight falls to the Rainbow Knight, and Marjorie shouts for Loras, and there we have the identity of the Rainbow Knight, at least. Catelyn had never met Loras Tyrell before, but even up in the distant north, they had heard tales of Sir Loras and his chivalric valor. And because, God, George is just turning up to 11 in these descriptions, let's do Loras now. So Loras rode a white stallion in silver mail and fought with a long-handled axe. A crest of golden roses ran down the center of his helm. There's just so much being communicated by what everyone is wearing. And I know, like, everyone gets kind of annoyed by this, but it's not just simple window dressing. I'll talk about this a little bit more in the depth section. It's actually quite important, same way that the feast was last week, two weeks ago. Moving on, two knights try to gang up on the Tarth Knight, but then he... He takes them both down, but then it's Loras versus the Blue Knight. Mounted on a black horse, the Blue Knight fights Loras on his beautiful white horse, and look, I've gone damn near six pages without Renly and Catelyn meeting, and we have a lot to cover in this synopsis in depth, so I'm going to summarize four Kindle pages with this. Loras the Blue Knight engages in a long fight... Loras and the Blue Knight engage in a long fight, both a horse on the ground, but the Blue Knight wins and pulls a dagger on Loras, and Loras says the word, yield, to the Blue Knight. Everyone hoots and hollers like they're the Cleveland Browns, and they just won the preseason Super Bowl. Hi, Frank. When they take the helmet off Sir Loras, Catelyn is shocked at how young Loras is. Then Renly orders the champions to come forward. So he, he, limps forward. His, his, armor showing the signs of battle. A few voices hailed him with the cries of Tarth, and oddly, a beauty, a beauty but most were silent. He, he, kneels in front of Renly, and Renly compliments him, him, about defeating Loras in the melee. Meanwhile, a drunk archer complains about the Blue Knight using a trick to win against Loras. Oh, the irony, a trick to win the melee, huh? And Catelyn asks Sir Colin why everyone hates this guy, guy, because he is no man, my lady. That's Brienne of Tarth, daughter of Lord Selwyn the Evenstar. Catelyn gets all horrified, and Colin relays that no one calls her Brienne the Beauty to her face. Meanwhile, Brenly declares Brienne the victor and asks her whether he might do something for her. Anything and everything, so long as it's within Renly's power. Well, Brienne wants a spot on the Rainbow Guard. 
Renly, for once, I'm not going to shade this motherfucker, but to his credit, he agrees. Renly asks Brienne to remove her helmet, and when she does, Catelyn understands why Brienne is called the beauty. It was mockery. The hair beneath the visor was a squirrel's nest of dirty straw, and her face. Brienne's eyes were large and very blue, a young girl's eyes trusting and guileless, but the rest? Her features were broad and coarse, her teeth prominent and crooked, her mouth too wide, her lips so plump that they seemed swollen. A thousand freckles speckled her cheeks and brow, and her, no- and her nose had been broken more than once. Pity filled Catelyn's heart. Is there any creature on earth so as unfortunate as an ugly woman? Well, Catelyn, you know you're my number one. I love your point of view, but I really don't think this is especially kind, even if it's said and thought out of pity. Anyways, Renly puts a rainbow cloak on Brienne's back, and Brienne declares her life for his going forward. Brienne swears this by the old gods anew, and then Catelyn realizes that Brienne is looking down at Renly when she makes her vow. Brienne is much, much taller than Renly, who was almost as tall as Robert. But then Sir Colin springs into action, springs into action announcing Lady Catelyn Stark as an envoy from Riverrun from Lord Rob Stark of Winterfell. Lord of Winterfell and King of the North, sir, Catelyn corrected him. Yeah, I'm loving it. Renly is surprised to see Catelyn, but he does his empty courtesy bullshit routine and introduces, and introduces Catelyn to his queen. Marjorie tells Catelyn that she's sorry for her loss, and Cat's like, well... Thanks, I guess. And then Renly swears he'll make the Lannisters pay. He so will. Just wait and see. He'll send Catelyn Cersei's head. Yeah, that'll show him. And will that bring my Ned back to me, Catelyn thought? It'll be good enough to know that justice has been done, my lord. <sighs> okay, I don't even need to shade Renly here because Catelyn's doing it for me. And Brienne realizes this. She corrects Catelyn by saying that Renly is a grace and you better bow before this terrorist king. But Catelyn, a little bit hypocritically, says that grace and lord aren't too far apart. Anyways, Renly's wearing a crown. Rob's wearing a crown. Everyone gets a crown, and she's not up for debating the point either. They've got more than enough shit going on. Renly says, yeah, well, you can call me your grace later on, but hey, how about sharing some secret war information shit with Renly? When's Rob going to Barshan Harrenhal? Catelyn isn't going to share this info with this traitor, so she's demurs saying that she's not a part of Rob's war councils. Ah, but what about Jamie? What's he up to? Jamie's at Riverrun, and alive, to Mathis Rowan's dismay. Renly says that the wolf is gentler than the lion, but then Lord Randall Tarley, the child abuser, strides forward. I call it weak. No disrespect to you, Lady Stark, but it would have been more seemly had Lord Rob come to pay homage to the king himself, rather than hiding behind his mother's skirts. Catelyn's not going to take this shit sitting down, and I fucking love it. King Rob is warring, my lord, Catelyn replied with icy courtesy, not playing attorney. (laughs) In other words, Get fucked, Randall. Renly pretends to think this is all just so amusing, and then he orders his people to set his pavilion aside for Catelyn's usage as he's all up in Lord Caswell's castle. He wants to chit-chat with Catelyn later, so he invites her to the feast that Lord Caswell is throwing that night. It's a farewell feast, you see, and as Renly is leaving the Caswell castle soon, and that's probably to Lord Caswell's relief. But then Lord Caswell pops in to say that what's his is Renly's, and Renly warns Caswell that when Robert heard that, he took people at their word. He asks whether Caswell has any daughters. Two. Then thank the gods that I am not Robert. My sweet queen is all the woman I desire. Okay, yep, we're moving on, and so is Renly back to the castle. Renly Stewart directs Catelyn and her party to the Royal Pavilion and asks if Catelyn needs anything. Catelyn takes a peek around at the MTV crib that Renly is living in on campaign, noting all the finery, mattresses, a tub, braziers, camp chairs, a writing table, pots, bowls of peaches, plums, pears, a wine bottle, and chests full of clothes, books, maps, game boards, and there is even a quiver of arrows, hunting hawks, and weapons. He does not stint himself, this Renly, Catelyn thought as she looked about. Small wonder his host moves so slowly. Catelyn notices the suit of green armor that Renly has mounted up, and she looks into it. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? 
Okay, George. Yep, I see you. Catelyn turns away from it, all angry at herself for her self-pity. She decides to go wash for the feast. Later, her, Wendell Banderley, Lucas Blackwood, Perwin Frey, and her highborn companions mm, head up to Lord Caswell's small keep. She's given a spot on one of the benches while between Lord Mathis Rowan and Sir John Fosway, noting that Mathis was polite while Sir John was jolly. Brienne was on the far side of the table, but she was dressed in knightly garb instead of a lady's attire. And still, Catelyn can't help but notice her appearance and how plain she appears, and how she has big hands, a flat face, muscled shoulders, and no bosom. And it was clear from her every action that Brienne knew it and suffered for it. She spoke only in answer and seldom lifted her gaze from her food. Well, gee, Catelyn, I wonder why Brienne is so aware of her appearance given the stare you were just giving her. Come on. But then there's the food, singing and tumbling. Course after course of the finest food was brought out for the feast. Ultimately, it all makes Catelyn sick to her stomach, but she eats it sparingly to display her strength. And she watches those closest to Brenly. Loras was there, looking good despite the bandage on his forehead. Marjorie was there too, and Renly played courtly with her, but it was Loras who Renly shared the most jokes and conversations with. But then Catelyn focuses on Renly himself and his conduct. The king enjoyed his food, and that was plain to see, yet he seemed neither glutton nor drunkard. He laughed often and well, and spoke amiably to high lords and lowly serving wenches alike. Not everyone was so outwardly tempered and well-mannered as Renly, though. Some argued about what glories they win in taking King's Landing. Others went for handfuls down women's bodices. Others played the harp. Sir Mark Molidor fed his pet monkey morsels from his plate. Sir Tanton Fossaway said he would kill Sandra Kilgain in single combat, though he does it with a foot in the gravy boat. Finally, a fool comes out wearing a gold-painted tin with a cloth lion's head. He chased a dwarf around the table, and Renly demands to know why he was attacking the dwarf, and he, said that he, and he says that he's the king. He's the kinslayer. It's Kingslayer full of fools, Renly said, and all the hall rang with laughter. Next to Catelyn, Lord Mathis Rowan points out that everyone is so young, and Catelyn agrees, thinking about how none of these boys were more than a year or two old during Robert's Rebellion, and they were boys during the Greyjoy Rebellion. She realizes something about them amidst all the chaotic buffoonery. It's all a game to them, still. Attorney writ large, and all they see is a chance for glory and honor and spoils. They are boys, drunk on song and story. And like all boys, they think themselves immortal. War will make them old, Catelyn said, as it did us. Catelyn was a child when Robert's Rebellion started. She was a woman when it ended. She pities these kids. When Lord Rowan asks why she pities them, given how alive and lusty they all seem, we get an all-timer from Catelyn. Love this line. Because it will not last, Catelyn answered sadly. Because they are the nights of summer, and winter is coming. That just sense of melancholy in Catelyn's chapter just draws me in so, so much. It's wonderful. But Brienne disagrees with Catelyn's assessment. She thinks that winter will never come for them, and even if they die, the singers will sing songs about them. It's always summer in the songs, and the songs, in the songs, all nights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining. Winter comes for us all, Catelyn thought. For me, it came when Ned died. It will come for you too, child, and sooner than you like. But Catelyn doesn't say that to Brienne, and thankfully she gets um, rescued, rescued is that the word, by Renly, who says he needs some fresh air. Well, of course he's bullshitting, but whatever. Would Catelyn like to come walking with him? Yes, she would. Brienne says she'll come too, she just needs to get her armor on, but Renly says, nah, don't, don't worry about it. Renly will be completely safe with his entire army around him. Oh buddy, do I have news for you on that front come a Clash of Kings Catelyn 4? Brienne seems crestfallen, but Renly leads Catelyn away, unaware or unconcerned at Brienne's turmoil. Outside of the hall, Renly directs Catelyn through a room to a stair tower. On the way up, Renly asks if Sir Barristan Selmy is present with Rob Stark. 
Catelyn, kind of puzzled, says, no, he's not. She asks, then, if Barristan left Joffrey's service. Kind of, Renly replies. The old incel was retired by Joffrey, and his white cloak was given to Sandor Clegane. Renly had hoped that Barristan would show up at his camp so he could give Sir Grandfather the rainbow cloak he had given to Brienne. Regardless, Renly says that the Lannisters were fools to lose Barristan. They keep climbing, and Renly tells Catelyn the story about how he offered to bring 100 swords to Ned's side if he would take Joffrey into captivity. It's just too, too bad that Ned didn't, because he would so totally be regent, and Renly so totally wouldn't have been after the throne. <laughs> yeah, okay, buddy, sure. Catelyn realizes that Ned refused Renly, and Renly confirms it. But you see, Renly, he just had no choice. He had to run, or else Cersei would have killed him. Had you stayed and lent your support to Ned, he might still be alive, Catelyn thought bitterly. Renly lies and says that he liked Ned, but he was just so damn stubborn in his unwillingness to hurt children. What a fucking fool. Don't want to hurt children? God, you're just the worst, Ned. They reach the top of the stairwell and Renly opens a wooden door. They step out and Catelyn can see for leagues in all directions. And there were fires, cooked fires, warming fires, just lots and lots of fires. They cover the earth like fallen stars. Count them if you like, my lady, Renly said quietly. You will still be counting when dawn breaks in the east. How many fires burn around river tonight? I wonder... Catelyn hears the music behind her and stays mum, refusing to count. Renly guesstimates that Rob has 40,000 Northmen and Rivermen with him now, but Catelyn knows that's not quite the correct figure. She stays mum, again, like a good mom that she is. Still, Renly claims he has twice that number here at Lord Caswell's Keep, and he has more at Highgarden and others at Storm's End. And he'll have Dorne joining him as well. And oh yeah, don't forget Stannis. He's got the narrow sea, lords and ships. It would seem that you were the one who has forgotten Stannis, Catelyn said, more sharply than she intended. But Renly doesn't want to hear about Stannis' claim. He thinks Stannis would be a shit king. The people, yeah, they might respect and fear Stannis, but nobody loves that guy. Catelyn persists, saying that if he's going to be one of the two Baratheon brothers, it's Stannis who has the rightful claim to the Iron Throne. Hell yeah, Catelyn. But then Renly, shit that he is, decides to engage in a little bit of pedantry. Renly shrugged. Tell me, what right did my brother Robert ever have to the Iron Throne? He did not wait for an answer. Oh, there was talk of blood ties between Baratheon and Targaryen, of weddings a hundred years past, of second sons and elder daughters. No one but the maesters cares about any of it. Robert won the throne with his warhammer. He swept a hand across the campfires that burned from horizon to horizon. Well, there is my claim. As good as Robert's ever was. Oh, man, fuck that. Seriously. God, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop editorializing. I'll wait. I'll wait till we actually get to the depths portion. But God, just fuck that shit. Really says that he's fine with confirming Rob as Lord of Winterfell. Hell, he could even retain the title of King of the North. But Rob, he has to bend the knee and pay homage. King is only a word. But fealty, loyalty, service, those I must have. When Renly asks what Renly will do if Rob doesn't give him what he wants, Renly decides to be very clear. I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. So you're threatening to kill Rob then, Renly? Is, is that it? Is that, that, is that what you're actually saying? It's, you're not being especially clear is what I'm trying to communicate. That shadow baby cannot come soon enough. <clears throat> mm. Renly talks about Torrin Stark bending the knee to Aegon the Conqueror when Torrin Stark knew all hope of staying independent was lost. He hopes Rob has the sense to do the same. And if they join together, they can win the war. But then a chain rattles. And the portcullis is raised. A rider comes pounding into the courtyard, demanding audience with Brenly. But Brenly shouts from the balcony that he's up here. Okay, well, bad news, buffoon king. Storm's end is under siege. Sir Courtney Penrose is defying the attackers. But but that's not possible. I would have been told if Lord Tywin left Harrenhal. These are no Lannisters, my liege. It's Lord Stannis at your gates. King Stannis, he calls himself now. 
And then it's Clash of Kings, Catlin 2. <laughs> My God, what a chapter. I mean, I remember when we started our journey into Clash of Kings that I was looking forward to getting a number of these lesser-remembered chapters in the story and... Here we are, another one. I'm so tempted to, to I'm so tempted to say that this is my favorite chapter in the Clash Kings so far, <laughs> but I only know that Makria waits me at the end of that road from Emmett as soon as he starts to talk here in a second. So I will just instead ask what you both thought of this chapter. Oh, what a chapter! It's been a while since we checked in with Catalin back with us, Stephen Atwell on her first chapter in the book, but it's worth the wait. Catalin too is just sublime. This is why she's my favorite POV in A Clash of Kings. It's a waterfall of imagery, politics, character introductions, imagery, heavy dialogue, even heavier inner monologue. Did I mention all the gorgeous imagery? Like I talked, <laughs> I, I talked when we started Catalan's story in A Clash of Kings about how her story feels like a rainbow, like all these different shades of color coming to light, so to speak, as you move through her chapters to the end. And in this chapter, you feel that color so strongly. The green of Renly's armor, the blue of Brienne's, all the colors of, of red and rose coming through Renly's army. It's so visual. Every element is maximized for eye-popping effect. It's the steadily building rapture that seems to encompass enough sound and fury to fill the world. What makes this chapter so effective after the initial shock and awe is faded is that that sensation isn't incidental. It is precisely the effect that Renly and the Tyrells want to have on you. George pulls off a marvelous magician's trick here, letting you feel the impact of arguably the best politicians in Westeros operating at the top of their game, while also laying out plenty of clues that it is all still just a shadow on a wall, and the truth is more complicated and less friendly. But I want to hear what, uh, what our guests thought. What did you think of A Clash of Kings Catalan 2 this time? There are so many reasons to love this chapter, <laughs> you know? Uh, do you love beautiful atmospheric writing that pulls you into the beating heart of a medieval world? check. Uh, you might have heard of the gorgeous imagery. <laughs> uh, it's making statements with pictures in your mind. So check, we've got that. Foreshadowing and groundwork, check, galore. Uh, do you love Renly? Do you hate Renly? Well, we've got you covered yes. there. <laughs> <laughs> do you love food porn? We've got turnips and capons and pastries. Uh, and my favorite, do you just love burns because child abuser Randall Tarley gets smoked bad in this chapter? Hell yeah. Yeah. But in all seriousness, this is a chapter to just revel in Kat's ability to bear witness to what's happening in areas of Westeros that we've yet to see. Uh, her insight into people and politics, which is phenomenal, and the sheer emotional weight that she brings to each and every one of her POV chapters. Just love it. Hey, you're absolutely right. Both of you are just spot on and, and why this chapter is just amazing again i, I just want to be like oh it's my favorite chapter so far but then it goes brand two is really really good as well from from a few weeks ago but i mean one of the things is like what i try to do, like do my opening thoughts about chapters i try to highlight like a smaller underanalyzed aspect of the chapter and maybe extrapolate some writing advice or show how george is planning small foreshadowing seeds little blossom into later reveals Boy, is that hard to do for this chapter. I mean, everything feels like a macro import for a clash and the larger story and themes for A Song of Ice and Fire. So I, I guess here I, in my little opening portion, I just want to highlight how good it is to have Catelyn as her point of view. I mean, yeah, like like you were saying, Emmett, Catelyn is the best point of view in A Clash of Kings, hands down. I mean, Davos is excellent, but he's only got three chapters. Catelyn's got so many more chapters and so much more substance and depth to her. But she's Catelyn as her point of view is just so well suited to be her eyes, her ears, her senses for this chapter, which I think is something that you both are highlighting in your opening thoughts. From her Sansa-like knowledge of the heraldry to her astute political observations of Renly's camp, Catelyn is 
perfectly suited to be our point of view to treat with Renly Brathian. I dare say she's the best point of view to introduce us to Brienne too, for reasons we'll unpack later on. But more importantly, it's Catelyn's melancholy that sets this chapter apart, where we get Davos's faithful duty and Tyrion's near gleeful cynicism shining through the narrative. We instead get a melancholy that weaves through Catelyn's thoughts from here on out. And George really starts this chapter in that very lovely sense of melancholy and bittersweetness in the the form of a dream that Catelyn has just before we get to the main action of the chapter. Before everything goes widescreen, George just shines a spotlight on Catelyn. This intimate moment of exhaustion and frustration and despair. She dreams of innocence. Bran before the fall, Rob before the crown, Ned before he rode south to his doom, and then it all fades on waking. And that resonates so well with what we were talking about with Bran 3 in our last episode. Her baby boy Bran looking up and down the benches of Winterfell, seeing only those who are gone and wondering who will be next. And we, we look at this dream of Catelyn and we can't help but think how far Arya and Sansa are from that image when we think about what's going on in their chapters in Clash of Kings. And as the ideal fades on waking, we get this just beautiful this like gem of imagery this of dawn as a cruel dagger that George describes it as coming for Catelyn, with night as the refuge, the dream world that is now preferable to reality. And in part, of course, that's just a reaction to grief and shock that Catelyn is dealing with, just retreating from the, the hard base facts of what her life is now. But it's also just this interesting inversion of the usual imagery of dawn as savior and night as downfall. That's being flipped here. I mean, and that ties into the upcoming Renly versus Stannis showdown, in which Renly is repeatedly associated with sun and summer versus Stannis, who is associated with night and winter. So Renly is the cruel dagger of dawn that awakes Catelyn from her dream in this chapter to call her back to adult duties. But Stannis will, of course, dispatch the cruel dagger of night, the, the black shadow baby dagger, from his dream later on at Storm's End. And, of course, you can link the, the cruel dagger of Dawn back to the, the swords of Starfire that Bran dreamed about in Bran III, the swords of the Tower of Joy. That One of the swords was, of course, Dawn with a capital D. So the cruel dagger of Dawn in this chapter links back to that. But, you know, all imagery and, and dense, you know, networks to the Tower of Joy aside, the emotional character work is the core. And Catelyn is just exhausted with all of this. Like In, in, in the waking world... She is letting go of the idea that it's ever going to happen again, that she's ever going to be able to get all her sweet ones back. She knows that her family as a unit is dead. So is, is she even dreaming of the past? Maybe. But when did Arya and Sansa ever hold hands like that? I get, right. the, feeling, I get the feeling that this, this dream is really the life Catelyn wanted to live. This is domestic bliss, forever stranded just out of reach, like behind glass. It's a fantasy within a fantasy. It's the willful projection of a reader desperate for a happy ending, even as they know deep down it's not coming. It's like Catelyn is dreaming a simpler version of this story, and then she wakes up into the real one. So instead, she just wants to sleep, to dream, to be done. No longer work tirelessly on behalf of a world and a story that just don't make sense to her anymore. Yeah, um, I love right there what you said right there because there's a there's a Hamlet reference there uh, to sleep perchance to dream, and if we extend that to its conclusion, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Cat uh, is not going to get the rest she that desperately wants to have while she lives, but after she dies, yikes! yikes. Watch out for the dreams that come then, right? That's a great yeah. point. It ties into what Amon said about, like, you know, what waits for us behind the veil of death. Only the whites know, and we know what they are like. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's definitely in there for, for Catelyn as well. Right. And then we also have the dagger. Then uh, this is the great way that George writes these, this chapter. He has the dagger of Dawn waking her, and she's reminded of the dagger that came and 
nearly took her life and her son's life, Rand, which is just a a great way of writing because you take something that is visceral to you, that is very strong in this point of view's mind, and then you make that the opening portion of how they're actually interacting with the world around them. Like that dagger represents so much to Catelyn about how the cruel world has broken through this idealized fantasy world that she lived up in Winterfell. Later on in the chapter, she's going to talk about how they had heard the story songs of Sir Loras Tyrell even up in the far north. It's nice to hear the stories when you're up and far away from any danger or disaster, but now you're thrust right in the middle of it. And it's it's kind of alarming for Catelyn that she is here in this position. It, it sounds banal to say it, but Catelyn is just a great example of someone whose every experiences has shaped their life and how they inhabit it. Again, it sounds very simple, but that's that's actually very hard to construct as a literary character, as someone you can see everything that has happened to them informing their present-day decisions. And for Catelyn, it's the sense of all these dishes that she's spinning that are about to fall apart. And it's alarming, not just on a personal level, but also because Catelyn like, stands in for the conventional wisdom, right? She is the consummate conventional wisdom politician of Westeros. So if she is giving up hope, it's a sign that the system is seriously falling apart. And as always, Catelyn stuffs her sorrows down deep to get back to work. But as her story goes on, they will fester and boil over and eventually explode. And that's why it's important that she doesn't just vanish after her death, that she comes back with all of those. We associate Lady Stoneheart with hatred and anger and vengeance. But what that is, is it's rooted in sorrow and loss that she's fearing here, just weaponized and turned outward. As I've said before ad nauseum, part of what makes the Red Wedding hit so hard is that our POV on it, Catelyn, based her worldview on the idea that nothing like the Red Wedding could ever happen. Her certainty of things like that is starting to fade bit by bit. She's beginning to realize, oh, that has more in common with my dreams than the reality I live inside. And even putting aside, you know, medieval politics and and wild fantasy imagery, there's something so aching and human about that, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I find Kat so relatable in the first moments here with her weariness. I mean, lots of mothers, lots of parents, (laughs) I'm sure can, on a purely sort of egocentric level. She's longing for that blessed moment that that we kind of all do. You alluded to this earlier, Jeff, um, when she can just stop worrying about her children and her family and her job and her home and just kind of be herself, sans responsibilities. Um, But as human beings, our ties to other humans keep us from being purely selfish, even when we're not being actively selfless. Uh, So the sad reality, George is suggesting, is that that moment is always going to be in the future. When Kat admits that today is not the day, we realize that uh, maybe she does too, uh, maybe she does too, that uh, tomorrow is truly always a day away. Uh, Not going to burst into song here, but (laughs) it is heartbreaking in its truth, isn't it? Um, So the, the tension between past and future that are shown in that first page uh, with her dream and then her thoughts upon waking, for me, really encapsulate Kat's Clash of Kings arc. Her first chapter starts with her observations uh, about the weight of Rob's crown. Uh, you know, at the end of Game of Thrones, she had realized that her little boy had become a man, and this book is all about her losing him. Ultimately, she believes the only child she has left to her uh, in all the small ways that we as parents <laughs> lose our adult children. So it's not about, you know, I lost my daughters or I lost, uh, you know, Brandon Rickon had been killed. This, these are small, you know, tiny deaths 
where, you know, he wants, it's about him becoming an adult, leaving her behind, not needing her. Uh, so as much as her dream is about that idealized past with all of her family, um, what Kat really wants as Clash progresses is for Rob to just put down that crown and take up his wooden sword again and just go back to being her little boy. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think the other tragedy that George layers in is that she prioritizes Rob Stark as being the one in most need of her help of, of being the mother figure to him, being his political advisor, being the diplomatic emissary as envoy to, to Renly Baratheon. When, as we're going to find out in just two chapters from now, Theon and the rest of the Ironborn are in the throes of their final war planning for their invasion of the North that is going to place that is going to place both Bran and Rickon in the most amount of danger possible being held in the hands of a people that is a people group that has had their ideology warped. And that's really going to be something that's going to drive Catelyn farther and farther towards that eventual state of, of madness that we find at the Red Wedding. But before we get to all that, though, we have to, of course, get to this glimmer of hope that there can be a possible alliance between North and South, and that's why Catelyn is down here in the Reach on a mission from Rob Stark. Yes, with her sorrows back on the back burner, Catelyn can focus on her mission. It's not one that she asked for, even though she's the one who came up with the idea of reaching out to Renly back in <laughs> Catelyn 1. She would prefer to stay with her family, and there, you know, there's some uncharitable readings of Catelyn's character that suggest that, oh, she doesn't really want to go home and be with her family. She Look, she came up with this idea of going to Renly. She clearly wanted that role for herself, and she made it up for herself. I think really what's going on is a constant conflict for Catelyn, that her mind is pulling her in one direction, her political mind, but her heart in another. The mind says south, and the heart says stay, or even better, go north. There's that great line, fate drives me south and south again, Catelyn thought, as she sipped the astringent tea. When it is north, I should be going, north to home. She had written to Bran and Rickon that last night at River Run. I do not forget you, my sweet ones. You must believe that. It is only that your brother needs me more. So you get this great sense of, of windswept destinies, of all the all the, the sheer size of Westeros North and South collapsed into one woman and her relationship to the people she loved. It's just perfect. Yeah. This, uh, this really encapsulates Kat as a reluctant hero. Hmm. Uh, in, in our most recent episode of Radio Westeros, we were discussing heroes and the hero's journey in A Song of Ice and Fire. And Georgia said that everyone is the hero of their own story. And with that in mind, we broke down this whole array of heroic types that he shows us. And everyone represents kind of one type primarily, although a lot of people represent different types you know, typical George. But uh, Kat's heroic arc is all about her being reluctant in this chapter, really nails it down. Uh, that quote you just read, how she wants to really be going north instead of south. Uh, things like Kat had never wanted this and what she says to Rob, send someone else. Uh, she is, you know, our classic reluctant hero. I think that's terrific. It's She's seeing... All these introductions of people who seem to be auditioning for the protagonist role in this chapter. You know what I mean? Like Brienne. Oh, here's the protagonist. Renly. Here's the protagonist. Marjorie is introduced that way. And Catelyn brings a very perspective, a very important perspective that, which is someone who's tiring of being the hero of her own story, who wants to stop being a protagonist. And that that's the perfect gaze to bring. And yeah, she didn't, she didn't really want this mission, but... Because as she points out, she doesn't know Renly. But then again, you know, who does in Rob's camp? Renly is young, and he seems to have stuck to the Stormlands, Crownlands, and Reach throughout his brief adulthood so far. 
not a lot of time to, you know, make allies or spend time with people from the Riverlands or the North, and most of Rob's lords are you know, culturally or temperamentally unsuited to treat with Renly's, the polite way of putting it, when it comes to men like the Great John, and of course you need them for the battle effort too. Rob can spare Catelyn for this mission, and that is somewhat backhanded. There is an element of him trying to send her away here, although, again, that's certainly not the whole of it. I think it's an uncharitable reading to suggest that's all of what's going on. I think Rob genuinely does value Catelyn's insights and her as a diplomat, but he also does feel as he's trying to come into his own as a man and a king that having his smart mother around to tell him what to do does, just doesn't feel good. Yeah, definitely. I, I just was just saying it's it's not the whole of it, but there's definitely a common thread for the rest of both Rob and Catelyn's arcs that he's he he wants to kind of stand on his own without mommy um, as, as valuable as she is and he recognizes that but um, you know he wants to send her to the twins or you know anywhere but kind of right next to him <laughs> and it's so hard yeah. because she knows that's necessary but at the same time she's like but you're all I have left and mm-hmm. you know the fates are taking everything away from me so she can't really let him go and it, yeah it's, it's just a wonderful Wonderful web we do weave with our children. Isn't it great? Yeah. It's yeah. so wonderful or so sad. Do you guys think that there's there's also an aspect in Rob trying to send Catelyn away that there's a, a bit of the patriarchal culture of, of Westeros kind of coming in line here where Rob's like, yeah, I'm the great warrior king who has my mom as the advisor. I think um, oh, yeah. you need to go to Seaguard or to the twins or back to Winterfell or down to Renly's camp to be the to, to be my envoy for, for me and my, my cause. Yeah, yeah, all those Northmen that you, you know you're saying are culturally unsuited to to do various things are also culturally unsuited to uh, accept a woman in any kind of role like this. Uh, you know, so the, he must realize that there are certain mem- members of his uh, of his army who are look you know looking askance at him having his mommy by his side all by his side all the time. So. And all this is really relevant because Catelyn's mission isn't even isn't a specific objective so much as a general feeling out of these cultural gaps and how to paper over them in the best way. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's just she's feeling Renly out as a potential strategic asset in the larger fight against the Lannisters. Now, she came up with this plan to reach out to Renly independent of Rob's strategy to lure Tywin West, which we see him teasing here, saying, Oh, I plan to march, but not on Harrenhal, winks to the audience. As such, Rob doesn't think he needs Renly to hurry north and lure Tywin out of Harrenhal for him, which was the plan Catelyn proposed to the Blackfish at the end of Catelyn 1. So that's not what Rob needs Renly for. But, as Rob will say when he returns to Riverrun, his overall strategy of luring Tywin west did count on one of the Baratheons eventually taking King's Landing from Joffrey and making peace with him. So you could argue then that maybe... You could argue that what Rob is really doing here is sending Catelyn to suss out Renly for that role, that if... If I help you beat the Lannisters and let you be the one that takes King's Landing, can I trust you to make a deal with me afterwards? Do you think that's what Rob is going for here? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I think that, you know, that the plan would have been, you know, Rob, defeat Tywin while Cat and Cleos Frey are off negotiating, maybe um, providing a little bit of uh, distraction to, to, you know, other people. And then, Ren- then, only then, would Renly take King's Landing. Cat uh, mentioned homage to her uncle early when she first came up with this plan, and Renly mentions it in this chapter. And you know, who knows really if an accord might have been reached if Stannis hadn't thrown his shadow-shaped wrench into the work. <laughs> so we'll never know. But clearly, the only person who thought Stannis was going to be trouble at this point is Tywin. Really, he's the only one who's said, "Gosh, I'm worried about." Stannis, uh, although to a lesser extent, 
Tyrion and Cersei were worried about Stannis, mm-hmm. but only in so much as they thought and kind of assumed that Stannis and Renly would be teaming up. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. I think the, the idea was that King's Landing would get taken by Renly or Stannis. And I think that becomes like the fallback plan as we find out at the end of A Clash of Kings, both from what Arya overhears in Harrenhal from Roose Bolton, as well as what Brendan Tully and Robb Stark talk about when they return back to River Run in, in Catelyn's second chapter in A Storm of Swords. So... The idea is that Renly, is that King's Landing falls to one of the Baratheons and they make peace that way and Rob somehow maintains his independence. But it's still kind of a, a wing and a prayer at, the, at this point. Like Renly will make the uh, say like, oh, well, yes, you could maintain the title of King of the North, but you're not actually the King of the North. You're more of like a Prince Doran Martell figure mm-hmm. in, in my idealized version of, of the kingdom of Westeros. Yeah, I think you guys bring it up well. It's sussing out what Renly can bring to the table for Rob Stark, whether a kind of common cause enemy in the form of Tywin Lannister can be established so that the two sides can come together and fight them or at least you know, fight kind of back to back or not fight each other until something can be worked out. But again, like the the plan really kind of shifts as we're going to get on to Catelyn 3 and Catelyn 4. They're like, oh, well, maybe Stannis can and Renly can come together and they can fight Cersei as, as Catelyn hopes in that parlay chapter from in that parlay scene from Catelyn 3. And then later she's like, well, we'll just call a great council. That's that's it. That's it'll be a great council. And we'll get everything figured out then. But really doesn't work out well for for Catelyn. And it's not because that she's wrong, but I think it's Emma, it's something you brought up in your introduction to this chapter. It's something you've been bringing up. I actually listened back to some of our old old catalog before we, we came onto this episode. Something you brought up in Game of Thrones Catelyn 2, in which you know, the norms of Westeros are just not working out for Catelyn. Like she thinks that pre-established norms and political and the ways that, that politics works in the Kingdom of Westeros will continue to will continue on forever and that we can work through that lens. But that's not the case here. All of those norms are being upended by what everyone is doing in Westeros with the death of Robert and really with all of these kings coming forward. And they're not really going to want to set their, their crowns aside. Absolutely. And to be clear, Catalan's ideal worldview is not like a machine spits out a receipt that says, you know, here is your duty. Do this today. She right. understands that there is some leeway and some vagaries and that you have to trust in the individual. That's what really she's doing with reaching out to Renly is that we're not automatically enemies. But we're not automatically allies, so we should talk. And there's 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 a, a certain amount of slippage her and Renly are both comfortable with as long as they can achieve trust. And achieving trust is the really slippery thing here. And we're seeing a lot of signs throughout the chapter of the possibilities of achieving that trust, but also the limits of it. And that's embedded in every detail, including the setting. And when we talk about our setting in this chapter, we talk about specifically the Castle of Bitterbridge, but more broadly, our setting is the Reach. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn II, is our introduction to the Reach. Indeed, it's the only chapter in the first three books set in the Reach. As such, George is working overtime to communicate what the Reach signifies, both thematically and politically. And with the Reach, what it all comes down to is Garth Greenhand, the, the emblem of an embodiment of fertility. The Reach is associated heavily with Garth, even more so than Brand the Builder in the North or Land the Clever in the West. And that is because Garth, as befits an embodiment of fertility, is said to be the father of basically all the major houses in the Reach, not just one. Garth's territory is made in his image, all summer and sunlight, the heart of art and food and chivalry in Westeros. Robert really sums the Reach up perfectly in Book 1 when contrasting with Winterfell. You need to come south, Robert told him. You need a taste of summer before it flees. In Highgarden, there are fields of golden roses that stretch away as far as the eye can see. The fruits are so ripe they explode in your mouth. Melons, peaches, fire plums, you never tasted such sweetness. You'll see, I brought you some. Flowers everywhere, the markets bursting with food, the summer wine so cheap and so good that you can drunk just breathing the air. Everyone is fat and drunk and rich. That's the reach. A taste of summer. A perfect fairy tale kingdom where everyone is fat and drunk and rich. Where sex and wine just seem to be like properties of the air. 
and this combination of fertile land and horny people has resulted in the Reach being the most populous part of Westeros. That's why Renly's army is so big. And we were talking last episode about how the Harvest Feast of Winterfell embodies stark power. It shows you how power works in the North. You carefully husband your resources, and then you share them with all. Now we are seeing how Reach power works. Now Reach power works is deliberate indulgence, wasting and overdoing everything just to show that you can, because here, winter never comes. Mm, well, if uh, the north is Scotland, the Reach is the south of France, right? Decadent, mm-hmm. sun-drenched, uh, as you said, it's the medieval hub of wine, poetry, chivalry. Uh, we've got it all here. Uh, they couldn't be, they're like chalk and cheese. Like They couldn't be any more <laughs> different than each other. Yeah, I think that George has talked about the Reach at some point being compared to Aquitaine, France. So I think that, that comparison is spot on. And I think we see the ultimate form of the Reach's power, that kind of deliberate indulgence, as you put it so well, Emmett, in the form of of the uh, of the Purple Wedding and all of the different courses of food that the, that, the, that the Tyrells bring out for Joffrey's wedding. And it's all kind of something that, you know, a character that we all love and, and know very well is going to be talking about here, especially. I mean, Brienne of Tarth isn't technically from the Reach, but that's what makes it so perfect, is that being from an outsider, she falls in love with that image more than anybody. Because the Reach is where the songs come from. The Reach sets the standard that all the stories are trying to reach. This fabled land of plenty, as we see with Brienne, encourages the mindset that the songs are real. The Reach is the heart of the stories that captivated Sansa so strongly. George has described fantasy as as being at its heart an overwhelming sensorial display. It's bright banners, lapis lazuli, and wines heavy on the tongue. And the Reach is what he's talking about. But what makes this chapter so good and what makes George's presentation of the Reach so effective on the whole is you have that perfect image, that combination of Aquitaine and the Moonlight Magnolia's American South, undercut by our specific setting within the Reach, Bitter Bridge. That name alone should make you tilt your head and go, huh, that doesn't sound like the rest of this place. That doesn't sound like the image Renly's trying to get across. Why is it called that? And it's called that because some of the worst bloodletting in Westerosi history takes place here. It gets its name from Magor making the Mander run red with faith militant blood during his war on them. It only got worse during the Dance of the Dragons. This is where Prince Maelor and his guardian Rickard Thorn were killed, and Prince Darren responded by burning down the town. Not only that, but within this army, Randall Tarley will massacre thousands of his fellows when he returns to Bitterbridge after Renly's death, lest they think to join Stannis along with their lords. This is George doing what he arguably does best. He shows you the image, the story, while hinting at the messier and uglier reality just behind the curtains. The reach is rose pink on the surface, but it's blood red underneath. Every rose has its thorn, and you know that long before Olena even shows up to make it explicit. (laughs) True. I find the descriptions of the town and the camp to be so reminiscent of the descriptions of Ashford Meadow in The Hedge Knight, mm-hmm. which is written around the same time and something from a meta perspective I think we'll be talking about later on. But like you said, this particular place has this ugly backstory and the reality of this city of tents and chivalry is a heck of a lot darker um, than the one at Ashford Meadow, as we'll be seeing. Uh, another thing that I, I, speaking of the history of Bitterbridge, uh, House Caswell is uh, the are the lords of Bitterbridge. They are also seen in the Mystery Night. You got Lord Joffrey uh, Caswell there, described as weedy to his descendant Lord Lawrence uh, Wispy in this chapter. So the weedy and wispy Caswells, uh, apparently that's a family trait. Uh, Lord Joffrey was the one that Sir Kyle the Cat lost to on purpose in his first tilt at the White Walls tourney in an attempt to gain a place in the Caswell retinue. Spoilers, that was a very bad plan. 
But Lord Laurent, we can if we can look ahead, uh, we learn in A Dance with Dragons that this Lord Laurent that is hosting Renly is the same little twerp who years past stole his father's blacksmith's son Rolly Duckfield's birthday present longsword off him, earning oh, himself. Oh, that's a- him! Oh, oh wow. yeah, what a, what a catch. prick! He is. He's a twerp. And he got uh, two broken arms and some cracked ribs for it, but also earned poor Raleigh a life of exile. So, you know, it's probably no wonder that Lord Laurent is really nervous around all these weapons. (laughs) (laughs) And he eventually spends the rest of the war locked up in his castle. So, um, yeah, that's obviously a very low opinion of Laurent Caswell. <laughs> so that, that's a great catch about about Lord Caswell. Yeah, I think you know, as as I was reading this chapter, it's positioned so well with Brand's third chapter from A Clash of Kings, which is the chapter that immediately precedes this one. In that, what we're seeing here is that all of Renly's army, all the small folk, all the men at arms, all the archers, all the swineherds, all of the teamsters, all the people who are like doing the actual heavy lifting or will or, or planning to do the heavy lifting in the war are all outside of the castle. They are all in tents and they're all in the, in the places where all the, all the small folk are supposed to be. They're in, they're put in their own place in, in Renly's camp, but all the Lords and all the high Knights and all the people who are dressed in the, in the drapery of, of chivalry and of the South, they're all inside the castle itself for the feast. What happens in Bran's chapter before this? We have everyone being brought inside the castle of Winterfell and brought inside to feast with everyone. And we will talk about the feast at significant length. But I think for now, though, we have the castle standing as a contrast in terms of separating class structures in Westeros of determining a hierarchy of the people. And the hierarchy is determined by who gets inside the castle and who has to stay outside the castle. And again, we will talk more about this, about the feast and how the feast deliberately contrasts with the Harvest Feast from A Clash of Kings Bran three. But I just think like we're, we're George is communicating so much in the visual language of this chapter without Catelyn being making the actual oh boom oh that's the connection there all the small folk are outside and all the rich people are inside the castle and you know it's even communicated too by the tourney that we're seeing here and that all of the rich lords and all the high knights are all in the best seats there and all the small folk are out in the are out in the mud sitting there in the uh, in, as they call it in the at, at the Preakness in the infield so to speak. Yeah, you have Renly's camp nestling so perfectly within the setting of the Reach, right? Like, if you have the Reach is is this sea of roses that beckons you close and you don't notice the thorns until it's much too late. That's Renly's camp. It's the best of times that is threatening the worst of times, a dream on the verge of collapsing into nightmare. Like, on one hand, this camp feels like a giant party bus, just roaming Westeros having the best time possible. And this is an impression that Renly and the Tyrells are working hard to cultivate. Stannis is a cheerless grump on a volcano covered in gargoyles. (laughs) Joffrey is a graceless sadist who revels in fear. And even the kind-hearted, charismatic Robb Stark feels the need to put ice into his voice these days. Are they all getting you down? Do you want to break from thinking about doom and decay and the death of all that you hold dear? Come party with Renly! And as with Robert's rapturous description of life in the South, Renly and the Tyrells want to give the impression of, yes, a microcosm of society within their camp, of all the social order, like, reified within Renly's little bubble universe. It's a better version of Westerosi society, one where the summer never ends. We've mentioned before that there's this interesting contradiction in the first act of A Clash of Kings, wherein, from what everyone is saying, we get the impression of a continent all a-bustle with armies and factions and new kings, but the Westeros we actually see on the page feels hollowed out and empty. Like, Stannis has barely anyone around him. 
Joffrey has barely anyone around him. Rob's army has fragmented and scattered. At one point, we get three empty villages in a row. Yes, we have, we have Winterfell as an exception last chapter with Bran 3, but mostly the sense you get early on in Clash of Kings is like, where is everyone? <laughs> and, then you get, and then you get to Catelyn 2, and you're like, oh, here's where everyone's been. They saw the smoke of the camp's fires when they were still an hour from the river. Then the sound came drifting across farm and field and rolling plain, indistinct as the murmur of some distant sea, but swelling as they rode closer. Like, I'm picturing George as, like, the conductor of a great symphony at this point. Like, all the strings going. By the time they caught sight of the Manders, muddy waters glinting in the sun, they could make out the voices of men, the clatter of steel, the whinny of horses. Yet neither sound nor smoke prepared them for the host itself. And just George is just giving you the sense of awe and sheer scale and just the, the, the overwhelming nature of it. This is a fearsome lot of men, Sir Wendell Manderley observed. And all Catelyn can say is that it is. The author is trying to overwhelm you, not just because he can, but because he is trying to get across how Ranley and the Tyrells operate with shock and awe. What chance do any of the other kings have? Look at this. Renly has more men, more resources, more everything than the rest put together. We are so screwed. As with the Reach itself, this is both a welcoming and threatening atmosphere. I think there is a momentum here that is familiar to anyone who's ever operated in, well, really any social environment. Like once an army or a corporate project or a high school lunch table looks like the winning side, everyone suddenly wants in. Yet for every shield she knew, there were a dozen strange to her, borne by the small lords sworn to the bannermen and by hedge knights and free riders who'd come swarming to make Renly Baratheon a king in fact, as well as name. Interesting that George brings that up right there. Ren making Renly a king in fact as well as name is being determined by these free riders, these hedge knights and small lords who pick Renly as opposed to being drawn there purely through oath. The prospect of gold and glory draws in bystanders. It's something specifically that Stannis lamented he lacks in the prologue. Why should any third party join me and not Renly? On the other hand, aside from all these, you know, glorious party bus elements, note George's word choices that the pikes are catching the red sunlight as if already blooded, or how Wendell Manderley describes the army's size as fearsome. We are being reminded that this isn't a party at the end of the day. This is an army. Remember what Sandor will tell Sansa later on in Clash of Kings. What do you think a knight is for, girl? You think it's all taking favors from ladies and looking fine in gold plate? Knights are for killing. And then think about what he tells the Brotherhood without banners and a storm of swords. Maybe you are knights after all. You liar like knights, maybe you murder like knights. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favors, their silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with the ribbons hanging off it, but it will kill you just as dead. And he could be describing Renly's army right there. Mm -hmm. Like, if, if this army had reached the capital, it would have posed just as much a threat to the civilians as Stannis is at the Blackwater. In fact, it's a lot of the same people in those two armies. <laughs> what I'm saying is it's so easy just to lose yourself in the bounty on display in A Clash of Kings Catalan 2 to feel warm and safe and at home compared to the bleak terrors in the rest of the book and the rest of Westeros. That's how Renly wants you to feel. But you have to keep this in mind. Every resource... Every scrap of food and drop of wine is only here in such capacity because it is being denied to everyone else. Everyone starving on the streets of King's Landing? This is why. This party, this army, and the smiling, shining man at the heart of it, they are the cause of all that starvation. Now, Joffrey is making everything worse, because he's Joffrey, <laughs> and it's not Renly's fault that Tyrion is hoarding Crownland's resources for Castle and Garrison, as we've seen in Tyrion's chapters. There is no good side here. As Jorah says, most nobles ignore and exploit those below. But... I think it is important to point out the contrast between Renly's image and the reality of his impact so far in the war, because the image, at the end of the day, is all he has to offer. And there is this kind of slippage I've noticed when you talk about this aspect of Renly, because the rejoinder to pointing out that he is 
starving thousands of people, is, oh, that's not cruelty. That's just a normal war tactic. That's what you do. I don't buy that argument personally for a number of reasons. <laughs> One is that, yes, normal war tactics are often very cruel. That's why so many people are anti-war, because even the standard good by-the-books practice of it inflicts horrors. Moreover, Tyrion's lords and soldiers are still getting fed, so it doesn't actually help Renly take King's Landing. Only the powerless are suffering. But above all, Renly is positioning himself throughout this chapter as so exceptionally good, such an ideal king, as he tells Catelyn in her next chapter, that it is worth bucking succession and skipping over Stannis. So he, more than anyone in my opinion, cannot fall back on Tyrion's line that, oh, I believe they call that war. If you are arguing that you're worth breaking norms for, you, more than anyone, can't justify your cruel behavior by pointing out that it's a norm. In other words, if Renly's actual decisions are bog standard, then why should we buy into his image of exceptionalism on which his campaign is based? And this matters to George because the whole is it okay to kill civilians because their lord serves the wrong king thing comes up explicitly with Stannis and Davos in the Storm of Swords and Stannis makes the right call. No, that's evil. And you know, maybe I'm just going off half-cocked because I'm biased. Feel free to tell me so at any point. No, yeah, you're right. Go on. <laughs> but I mean, you, I think you see it with the Tyrells as well. The image of exceptionalism is what they seek, not the substance of it, right? They hold back the food, starving King's Landing, only to show up post-Blackwater with a trickle of what they stole from the populace. It works, of course. They arrive in the city to the cheers of the crowd. The Tyrells are very good at what they do. They're effective politicians. But that is not the same as morally good actors and husbanding of resources like we see with the Starks. The Tyrells are Lannisters with roses, as Ser Dantos says. They're better by degree, not kind. The surface matters tremendously for getting this party together in the first place, but it should not be confused with substance. Unfortunately, it's very easy to do so, as we see with every faction in the Song of Ice and Fire, but especially this one. I mean, am I being too hard on Renly and the Tyrells, guys? No, no, not uh, at all. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. No, I mean the, the, the thing about the thing about the the Renly is is like that. That's kind of infuriating. I mean, not just for me as as, as a supporter of Stannis, but as but as as a human being, is just how how he gets away with it, and like that no one is like puts the finger at Renly and be like, you're fucking starving people, man. Like you are creating this image of yourself of chivalry and of adhering to the values of exceptionalism as a exceptional Lord of Westeros. And that's what makes you, that's what gives you the right to be the king. But it's all just image. Like you were saying, it's, there's no substance behind it, but it's infuriating that no one like actually points the finger at Renly. And I get it that no one in his camp would be like, Yes, Renly, we should think about this because they're all benefiting from the arrangement that Renly is presenting to the Reach, right? Like, yeah, we'll all get fed and get drunk and get to fuck and do all the great things that everyone else is being denied in Westeros as a result of the campaign. We're all benefiting from this, so we're not going to be the ones who are going to, you know, call attention to the fact that we're we're benefiting from the from this arrangement. We will leave Stannis with the bill, as always. Right. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna see as as we go forward, the Tyrells are just the masters of, of theater, right? I yes. Mean, we don't get to see what Renly is or would have done because his his uh, time on page is growing very short. But Tyrells, <laughs> they excel at um, making themselves look good. But uh, there isn't much substance. I mean, I think that's obviously, well, everything you were saying, I mean, agree that uh, there's not much behind uh, the face that they show. Well, the other aspect of it, too, is that, like, there's not even, like, the sense that Renly is presenting, like, okay, this is just a temporary thing. Once this is over, I have this master plan of economic and societal reform that I'm going to bring forward. And, yes, I know it's it's shitty that the peasants have to suffer, but, you know, once I'm in power, that's all going to change. It's all going to be better. And it, it's all just, you know, Renly just says, like, 
I'm better. That's it. I'll, I'll just be the better king. People love me. That's it. That's it. And it's you're like, it's the idea of winning. So therefore, we've already won. I shouldn't even have to right. fight a battle. Just look at my army. Right. We win. It, it's it's this tautological like way of looking at the world that only breaks when someone from the outside comes in. And all these themes and images we're talking about come together with the tourney itself. You know, from a distance, Catelyn hears cheering. It's the hands tourney 2.0 from book one. Reality made better than the songs, as Sansa put it during that event. And you have Wendell Manderley's reaction. Oh, splendid. Which is, again, exactly the reaction the hosts want. Everyone is drunk and laughing and happy. They're all focused on a martial art at its best. And again, you know, think of people bludgeoning each other in the field as a practice for killing each other on the battlefield, but also an expression of a kind of artwork with your body. And Mm -hmm. Catelyn's reaction, though, of course is more mixed, and she so perfectly sums up this chapter and her place in it, standing in the middle of this gigantic party, everyone laughing and get along, and she thinks to herself, this is madness. Real enemies on every side and half the realm in flames, and Renly sits here playing at war like a boy with his first wooden sword. Now, <laughs> as much pleasure as I took in reading that, Jeff <laughs> did did so well point out in the synopsis that Catelyn is not 100% accurate about Renly's motives here. He, there is a strategy involved, and Tyrion points it out really well. Were I he, he being Renly, I would do much as he is doing. Make my progress. Flaunt my power for the realm to see. Watch. Wait. Let my rivals contend while I bide my own sweet time. If Stark defeats us, the South will fall into Renly's hands like a windfall from the gods, and he'll not have lost a man. And if it goes the other way, making the sun on us, well, we are weakened. So Catelyn is wrong that there's not a larger strategy at work, but Catelyn is right that what Renly is doing here is really just play-acting at the job of being king, and this constitutes an abandonment of the real duties of protector of the realm. In other words, Renly might not actually have the mindset of a boy playing at war with his first wooden sword, but he is very happy to encourage that image. He has a strategy, but that strategy demands that everyone just gonna get in line and no one do anything unexpected, and everyone just smoothly <laughs> get along with Renly, and how mature really is that as a strategy? I think it's a good balance where Renly the adult is not identical to Renly the child. Like, clearly he has grown into his own as a political operator. But Renly the child is still in there, informing the larger decisions, just as with Stannis and Proudwing, that he is always kind of circling back to that moment in his head. And you got to ask the question, if Renly really is the king Westeros has been waiting for, the one that will solve everything, the one who can live up to all the imagery around him, why is he not doing it why is he not actually riding to the rescue why is he still here in the reach after months and the reason because it's not in his interest to ride to the rescue he's not mance personally riding around to convince everyone to follow him in order to save them from the army of the dead nor is he beric dondarian redistributing his knightly privileges in order to defend the small folk being hammered by all sides i've often seen renly framed in the fandom as being like a step forward politically, like like even a proto-democrat. And I think that's just such a wrong read. Renly is a step backwards. He's a warlord. He is, at mm-hmm. best, Damon Blackfire, the image of a perfect king, rooted in the chivalric image of the Reach, nothing more. At this point in the series, haven't we, heard how, haven't we learned how little that's worth? It's just another shadow on the wall. Oh, yeah. I think that comparison to Damon Blackfire is completely apt. You know, when Renly declared himself king he overstepped centuries of law and tradition regarding the proper inheritance of lands and titles like damon before him renly threatened to upset the accepted order of things he's literally pitting brother against brother in a power struggle centered on rumors of bastardy and claims of superior suitability for kingship the blackfire rebellion basically boiled down to a persistent belief that damon blackfire would be a better king 
than his studious half-brother Darren, who neither looked the part nor lived up to the ideal of Warrior King, which does have a certain parallel to Renly's own belief that the crown will suit me, as it never suited Robert <laughs> and wouldn't suit Stannis. God, no. So, yeah. Uh, Renly as Damon is, is, for me, something that I have uh, really enjoyed as, as a parallel. And it's something that, that we talked about extensively about at the end of A Game of Thrones in, in Catelyn's final chapter where the, the Northern Lords and the River Lords are going back and forth about, well, should we? who should we support? Renly's got the big army. Stannis has the rightful claim. Joffrey, we're not going to support him because he cut off Ned's head. But at the same time, like, and this is something we brought it back then, George likely hadn't come up with the Damon Blackfire characters. Likely his creation was in and around this time, as we'll talk about towards the end of this episode. But at, at some point, you'd think that if George could go back and rewrite this chapter with all of the different world building that he's integrated into the story after A Game of Thrones and after A Clash of Kings, you can imagine Catelyn thinking like, this is Damon Blackfire. Like, this is this what happened with Damon Blackfire and his claim. What happened to all the people who supported Damon Blackfire? What ruin it brought to the realm? And you think about all of the different wars that were fought over this one guy who thought he was the perfect king and all of his sons and grandsons and nephews and all the different people that were surrounding Damon Blackfire and Bittersteel and how much ruin they brought to Westeros in five invasions and probably a sixth invasion too if you should and you should believe that young griff is a blackfire or possibly a blackfire <laughs> uh different other type of targaryen bastard it's just ruined it's ultimately what they bring to the table is just this conception of wars and the power of arms and strength is what decides kingship renly is going to make that explicit at the end of this chapter but here george is using the language of the size of the army and all of that that's communicating before he actually makes it explicit so he makes it a little bit subtle here and then he does does a one-two punch subtlety first showing the size of the army showing the the grandeur of the reach showing all of the storm lords and reach lords that are backing renly and then later when renly is up there at the top of the tower with catelyn he's going to make it very explicit what renly is communicating as what his claim to the kingship is based on and ultimately, he does make it clear what that kingship and what that claim actually brings Westeros. More ruin, similar to Damon Blackfire. Here's the thing about Damon Blackfire, though. He went for the crown. He got an army together and he marched. He actually did the thing. Renly doesn't want yes. to do the thing. He just wants to yeah. appear like he's doing the thing. He wants to have people have the idea that he's the person who would do the thing. It's all an act. And look... Right. I mean, we might make fun of Damon Blackfire's campaign, but, you know, the idea that I should be in charge because I'm the magnificent one with the large army and everyone likes me is the source of everyone who has power in Westeros. It's not just Renly. <laughs> Ren Renly is just uniquely ripping things open, but he is he's he's standing on the shoulders of people who came before him. It's it's for me, it's not even so much that Renly is completely acting in an unprecedented fashion. He's he's trotting in the footsteps of those who have come before him and taking one more step. Does that make sense? It, it does. I think you're absolutely right in that Damon Blackfire did get an army together, mostly of secondary houses and especially centered in the Reach primarily, and then brought it to bear on King's Landing. He marched against his his half-brother 
and, you know, met his end at, at, at Redgrass Fields. And, um, you know, there is he won a number of significant battles in the Reach. If you read The World of Ice and Fire and you listen to some of the stories that were communicated in The Sworn Sword and as well as in The Mystery Night. And I can't wait to hear more about what, what happened when, in the Blackfire Rebellion because there are some ambiguities there with the first one, but especially with some of the later ones, too. But I think, like, yeah, I think it's, it's a perfect comparison. Uh, not a perfect comparison. I think that's a perfect contrast between the two and that Damon actually marched. Renly is pretending at war. He's still with his wooden sword, or at least that's the image that he's communicating, as you pointed out so well. Yeah, comes back to theater. So, mm-hmm. But enough beating about the bush. Let's talk about the guest of honor, his grace Renly Baratheon, <laughs> and his spectacular reintroduction alongside his new bride. And this really is George at his absolute peak of his game. I love Renly's reintroduction so much as a perfect contrast to Stannis' introduction in the prologue. And just the, the imagery at work, the fine character details, the politics... All of it comes together because really this is this is George showing you how how imagery reflects politics. I think you can see that all over Renly. Oh, yeah. I mean, like we're going to like keep talking about Renly as the shadow on the wall and what power actually means to him. Hard and soft power. And we'll get into more of that later in the podcast. But I, I figure like now is like a good point to talk about Renly's introduction and the trappings of power, specifically Renly's crown and sigil and what they communicate. And once you know it, but they both communicate basically the same thing. You know, first the crown, as as the chapter says, the slender circlet around his brow seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought. At the front end lifted a stag's head of dark green jade adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. Soft gold, roses, etc. This is Renly showcasing his chivalric courtly virtue. Look at me. I am the model of courtly virtue and chivalry. I've got this amazing crown that communicates all of that. But then contrast this to Rob's crown, which I think is beautiful. It's, it's brilliant that George has Catelyn as a point of view here because Catelyn was the point of view for what Rob's crown looks like in the first chapter in A Clash of Kings. An open circlet of hammer bronze and size with the runes of the first men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes wrought in the shape of long swords. Of gold and silver and gemstones it had none. Bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong to fight against the cold. I mean, it's it's fucking metal in more ways than one, and mm-hmm. I think that's great. But the contrast kind of reads deliberate on George's part. It demonstrates that Renly is all about the soft comforts in life, something Catelyn is going to observe in specific detail in the pavilion that Renly occupies. But it's more than simply showing Brenly as a dude who likes the finer things versus Rob the warrior. It's also showcasing who's the real power behind the throne. The Tyrells. Rings of roses are lifting the stag at the front of the crown. What 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 is that meaning? Hmm. What is the symbol here? What is the what is the yeah, we all know it is. Renly was crowned at High Garden by Mace Tyrell, and the message is extremely clear. It's the Tyrells who lift Renly into royalty and glory. And on to the sigil itself. And before rereading, I had forgotten, this is kind of funny, I'd forgotten that it wasn't just Stannis and Joffrey who had altered the Baratheon sigil. Renly did it too. Quote, the crown stag decorated the king's queen, velvet tunic as well, worked in gold thread upon his chest, the Baratheon sigil and the colors of High Garden. Where, like Emmett, you were pointing out how in the past, how Stannis' sigil represents Stannis throwing his literal heart into the fire, namely Shireen, as well as kind of subsuming his own identity of being a Baratheon into the fire. It's symbolized by the Baratheon crown stag consumed by the heart and the fire. Renly is demonstrating again, as similar to his crown, what he relies upon for his power in his sigil. The Baratheon sigil is green, high garden colors. It's again showing us that Renly's kingship is resting on the Tyrells. There's no deeper meaning. It's, again, it's... 
very much the showcasing us. There's no substance behind what's being communicated here. It's an expression of Renly's power, and it's something that he's going to make explicit at the end of this chapter. So all of these, George loves his sigils. He loves his heraldry. He's written significantly about that. I think there's an old email between him and I believe Elio from like the early 2000s or maybe even the late 1990s where George goes paragraph after paragraph after paragraph about House Connington sigil of, of all things like you know it, it's, it's really important it's interesting it's it's very unique stuff but George is interested in this not simply because of all it communicates it's not simply that he loves the colors and loves de- but designing sigils although he does do that it's what the sigils the crowns what they communicate and they communicate a lot of substantive things and it's so important when we're looking at a song of ice and fire to not just read it as a simple description and just write it off as description it's communicating things and george does that really really well with both renley's crown and his brand new sigil which i fucking hate <laughs> uh i find it interesting uh renley has actually been wearing tyrell colors all along uh in the game of hmm. thrones in ned's first small council meeting renley was wearing dark green velvet with a dozen golden stags embroidered on his doublet a cloth of gold cape draped casually across one shoulder fastened by an emerald brooch so he's added the roses to the crown which is hugely significant as you said in terms of Tyrell's support and what it means to his claim but in my opinion there is a slightly deeper meaning to his clothing and I think it symbolizes his connection to Loris hmm so, uh, because back then, if you, he was not planning, it would appear he was not planning for himself to marry into the Tyrells. He was hoping that he was going to, um, you know, get Robert, uh, on board with setting Cersei aside and marrying Robert to Marjorie. So why would he be wearing green at this point? I think it was in honor of his boy, Loras. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, lest his in-laws get too self-important, mm-hmm. uh, make note of his war banner. Uh, he's not putting any green and roses on his <laughs> war banner because uh, that is still the original Baratheon colors. Uh, you uh, read the quote in the summary about his uh, massive uh gold banner that was large enough to carpet many a hall. I was trying to conceive of how, you know, in a medieval world, how that was even manufactured. Every time I read that, (laughs) I kind of stop and think about that. Um, But anyways, um, this is the banner he's going to carry to meet Stannis uh, in Cat 3. Uh, when they face off against each other, Renly will be holding on to his, uh, or actually it will be Brienne, carrying his the original Baratheon sigil in the face of Stannis's distinctly foreign. <laughs> and I mean foreign in the sense that my, uh, my English father-in-law says foreign, which basically means anything that doesn't come from the north of England. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Uh, like incredibly foreign so um i think in that ca- in that sense that's going to be a statement of uh renley's legitimacy you know well, it's, it's just- I, I think it's fascinating that like you're you're bringing up something i think is really cool and that 
Renly in the interior of this camp surrounded by Reachmen and by loyal Stormlords is able to wear the Tyrell colors because he feels uncomfortable when he's outward facing mm-hmm. towards Stannis. Mm-hmm. He has to resume the symbols of, of House Baratheon. He has to show himself to be the real Baratheon in the setting as opposed to Stannis's, you know, foreign, as you put it, uh, sigil. And I think it's really fascinating. Like, again, it's it's all image stuff. And whereas here in the interior of Renly's camp out at Bitterbridge, He's showing his true colors, haha. And yeah. out when he gets back out to the Stormlands and outside of Storm's End, he flies the the, the flag he's supposed to fly, right? He's he's he's, yeah. he's he's telling Stannis something and telling the other Stormlords that are in support of Stannis that and other Stormlords and other Narrow Sea Lords have that he sees the real Baratheon. Look at me with my my actual legitimate sigil that um you know I, I put the other stuff away in the closet for a little while uh, mm-hmm. until we finally actually take King's Lang and I can resume or assume <laughs> the kingship. I promise I am a real Baratheon. And this guy, uh, I love that exchange, by the way. So I know that's looking forward a bit. But uh, that exchange between uh, Renly and Stannis about the banners. That's actually more Renly. And Stannis doesn't say much. He just fumes. But uh. <laughs> It is perfect, though. Does. It's the culmination of all the buildup we see for both Renly and Stannis. All, the, all their different strategies and backstories and images, they all clash perfectly at Storm's End. And you're both, both making great points. Renly definitely relies on the Tyrells. Most of his army comes from the Reach, not his native Stormlands. Recall from the prologue that many Stormlords are uncertain and holding back rather than rushing off to join their liege lord Renly. Moreover, Renly has Marjorie on his arm as an indispensable political asset. And this, of course, is our introduction to Marjorie after she was built up a bit in Book 1. And she is presented here as the idealized image of a queen, with her lovely looks and diplomatic demeanor to Catelyn. Quite the contrast to Queen Selyse, who doesn't fit those beauty standards and goes out of her way to piss everyone off. Moreover, (laughs) Marge stands in for the image of House Tyrell and the Reach as a whole. Beauty, chivalry, poise, the ability to kill with kindness. And her presence defangs Renly's sexuality as a political tool to be used against him. Who cares if Renly's gay as long as he performs straight, as long as we preserve that all-important shadow on the wall? And that's especially true when you consider the succession. Renly is himself gay and is leapfrogging Stannis in the ladder to power, so Marjorie at his side is is a, a reassuring promise, a promise of an heir, made and raised the usual way. Renly's going to break the rules, but Marjorie and her firstborn son will restore them. Renly gives men their idealized image of charismatic youth, and Marjorie does the same for women. Join us, because secretly, you all wish you could be us. There's, <laughs> they're a celebrity couple, in other words. They are a, a, a feudal society's version of a celebrity couple, <laughs> broadcasting a certain lifestyle that tries to get everyone else on board. But having said all that, you could also argue that it's the Tyrells who are relying on Renly. Because as we learn in A Storm of Swords, Tyrell power over the Reach is actually fairly fragile. Plenty of houses mm-hmm. can make stronger yeah. claims to a post-garden or high garden than the Tyrells. As such, while Lord Mace wants to see his grandson on the Iron Throne in part out of pure petty pride, same reason he overreached in trying to make Willis attorney champion, as Oberyn will discuss in A Storm of Swords, it's also because Mace would really like the crown at his back to prevent the Florence, Tarleys, Rowans, etc., from making their more provincial power plays. Look at me, I'm a king, is an extremely useful political statement for them when it comes to keeping the Reach's house in order. Speaking of which, though, I think we should talk a little bit more about how Renly crafts his image and just the beauty of this reintroduction. In their midst, watching and laughing with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. Small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervor, she thought. He's Robert come again. Renly was handsome as Robert had been handsome. Long of limb and broad of shoulder, with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile. 
Again, I love this passage as much as Stannis' introduction because they are perfect flip sides of the same coin, describing the surviving Baratheon brothers in relation to Robert. Where Stannis is the shadow turned to steel by standing in Robert's son, Renly is the effortless recreation of Robert's image. It's almost spooky as if time has been reversed <laughs> and suddenly it's the beginning of Robert's rebellion again. Mm-hmm. This Robert is being reflected in a copper mirror, perhaps. I like it. I like it. This mm-hmm. is this is the core of Renly's character that he's the mirror image looking back at Robert. He is the, his self presentation is as young Robert reborn. We saw George setting this up via Ned's POV back in book one when he's saying, "Oh, you must forgive me, but sometimes you look the very image of your brother Robert." Or later when Robert's on his deathbed, Ned is describing Renly. He might have been Robert's ghost as he stood there, young and dark and handsome. But now that is more than just an interesting parallel. It is the subtext of Renly's campaign for the crown. By the time we meet Robert Baratheon, that cherished image of the laughing storm muscled like a maiden's fantasy, pardoning his enemies and turning them into friends, by the time we meet him, that's all collapsed in on itself. Robert has given up on his body, his crown, his council, his queen, his brothers, his quote-unquote sons, and himself. The only one he believes in is Ned. So he embodied what happens after the songs end, after reality sets in, after you have to leave the reach and summer turns to winter. You have to do the work, and Robert refused. So he was the fallen, broken world that Catelyn wakes up to in this chapter, and what Renly is promising Westeros is a return to her cherished dream, where everyone's holding hands and smiling and the sun is always shining. It's no accident that Catelyn describes Renly as a boy with a wooden sword, just like Rob in her dream. And that is an extremely seductive promise. Let's just start over. Let's just reboot society, <laughs> starting with me. It's very seductive, as we see play out in miniature with Catelyn and her dream. The problem is you can't live inside a dream. At the end of that, the, the far beyond logical end of that mindset is the House of the Undying. And even worse, Euron Crozai, whose apocalyptic superpowers are derived from the crow who visited him in his dreams. And just as Euron crumbles when he's challenged, just as the promises of Karth quickly fade when you wake up, the problem we're, we're all three of us are getting at is that there's no there there to Renly. Hmm. There's nothing casting that shadow on the wall. It's just the shadow. And that you can see that reflected with, with Robert's fall. Like, Robert thought reuniting with his childhood friend would bring back the past, bring back this era of Robert's rebellion. And it failed because you can't bring back the past. As we've said before, the, the, a testament to the folly of living only with your ghosts is the army of the dead. Like, that's, that's the end point when you just want to surround yourself with your ghosts. You get an army of zombies. A ghost is an insubstantial thing that can haunt you. But it can't help you. And since framing Renly as Robert's ghost is a clue that he is ultimately a shallow man. He embodies this attempt to capture what cannot be captured again. Again, perfect opposite to Stannis. If Stannis' introduction was about hating the past, Renly's introduction in this book is about loving the past. It's about resentment versus nostalgia. And the problem is, is that both of them are traps. Like, nostalgia is more appealing from the outside than resentment. But both of them are traps. When we're looking at Renly, it's it's substanceless, right? It's it's that when we're looking at when we look back at Robert and we look back at young Robert, he at least was fighting for something. Or maybe if he wasn't specifically fighting for something, the people that surrounding him were. You had John Aaron and Ned Stark who were always there to be like, okay, we are actually fighting because the king fucking murdered two people that he shouldn't have murdered, and we need to stand up to that, or else the entire feudal structure collapses. At some level there was a reason to fight in Robert's Rebellion. What we don't see with Renly is a reason to fight Renly's war for the Iron Throne except for Renly, right? And that's ultimately what drives 
me and and I guess Stannis up a wall about 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 why Renly is out here anyways and fighting and trying to subvert his brother's claim to the Iron Throne. All of that aside, though, I think you bring up a great point in that Robert ultimately ends up in his story as a guy who is obese, drunk all the time, fathering bastards, and just misruling the kingdom of Westeros. And this is the guy that Renly is attempting to consciously set the imagery around about his failed brother of a king. As we've said many times in the past in our patron episode about Robert Baratheon, in his entirety of his reign, the only substantive political accomplishment that we have Robert doing was winning the Greyjoy Rebellion. That's it. If, if you're sourcing your nostalgia around something that wasn't good to begin with, that was actually quite bad for the country of Westeros, it's shitty. So if you're looking for the substance amidst all this sound and fury, <laughs> you don't look for Renly. You don't look at the Tyrells. Where you look at is Brienne of Tarth, truest knight in Westeros, Dunk's great-granddaughter doing him proud. And what an introduction she gets here. Let us just oh, yeah. sing its praises now. George takes his time building Brienne up in expert fashion. As Catelyn approaches the turning grounds, our focus is unlikely to be on this random knight in the cobalt blue armor. You know, our focus is on Renly and Marjorie, the event as a whole. Then Brienne takes down Red Ronnet, and someone in the crowd says, Laurel so do for that blue... And the roar of the crowd cuts him off before he can say, bitch, presumably that's what he was going to say, and that would give everything away. When our attention returns to the fight after George describes Renly and Marjorie, Catelyn draws our eye not to Brienne, but to Loras. We've already seen Loras as a champion in the Game of Thrones. We know his reputation, so we're inclined to think that he'll win. But he doesn't, and there's this great moment when, Lo- when Loras loses, and the shimmering rainbow image of the legendary Knight of Flowers falls away from around him in an instant, and in the eyes of Catelyn, the ultimate mom, he looks like... A boy, like Rob, playing with his wooden sword. Always back to that. Always back to the the fragile children inside these suits of armor they're trying to wear. He's replaced in our mind's eye by Brienne. Yet, as Catelyn notes, this knight isn't being treated like a champion. Why is that? Because that is no man, my lady. That's Brienne of Tarth, daughter to Lord Selwyn the Evenstar. Such a good line. Such a good nod to Eowyn in Lord of the Rings. I love it. And I think Catelyn's reaction really exemplifies why she's such a well-written character. Like, George has said before how annoying he finds, quote-unquote, spunky modern attitudes in medieval fantasy that, that just don't fit the, the, the society he's, he's telling his stories in. And this is a great example. It would have been very easy to write Catelyn as 100% supportive of Brienne, just yas-queening it from the stands the entire time. <laughs> that, however, would be completely out of character for Catelyn, because Catelyn represents the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom is horrified by Brienne's actions. And Catelyn quickly follows up her horror with pity when she sees Brienne's face and she cringes at the sight of Brienne's obvious crush on Renly. Like, this is all designed to definitely tilt us against Catelyn and to make us highlight our own emotions and response and think, oh, I guess I'm not sharing Catelyn's perspective on this. I have to think more clearly about how I should feel about Brienne. Having said that, Catelyn's relationship with Brienne will deepen as we go forward in The Clash yes. of Kings. And there is a lot more going on with this intro than just Catelyn's perspective. Like, if you think about it just visually... Brienne is breaking the pattern of Renly's perfect tableau. The tourney, the rainbow guard, his magnificent clothing, all of this is designed to say that this is what glory looks like. This is what wealth looks like. This is what the winning side looks like. And Brienne defeating Loras, Renly's chosen champion, and showing up to be a woman in knight's armor, she's she's throwing off the visuals somewhat. Well, but at least she wears blue armor. I mean, you know, the only color wanting from the Rainbow Guard at this point was blue. What a coincidence. She's cool. Yeah. (laughs) She'll fit in just fine. 
Right. But like Brienne as a whole, like if, if one thing defines Marjorie Tyrell, it's it's the smoothness and ease with with which she seems to inhabit her, her role in society. Brienne, unlike Marjorie, does not fit that image. But we have been talking throughout this chapter about image versus reality. And beneath the surface, Brienne, of course, honors the ideal of knighthood far more than the official knights do. The serves of the realm are either inflicting horrors on the peasants or failing to prevent that. It is Brienne who will put everything on the line to defend the powerless from the cruel, as true knights are sworn to do. No chance and no choice. They may call her beauty mockingly in this chapter, but she has inner beauty, which matters more. And her face lights up with that inner beauty when she gets her cloak from Renly, any, the only thing she's ever wanted. Brienne is clearly a parallel to Davos. Both of them are outsiders who honor the values of knighthood and lordship, respectively, far more than the insiders do, and so prove more worthy of them. Both are devoted to their Baratheon king, for better or worse, and both struggle to reconcile that singular devotion with doing the right thing in general, which they both want to do. So the introduction of Brienne through Catelyn's eyes amidst the, the tumult of a camp that doesn't like her very much, in a way, this, this shows us what Davos must look like to the nobles around him, that even the sympathetic ones are looking on with kind of horror and pity at someone they feel is out of place. It is up to the reader to see the truth. You know, George doesn't usually directly embed modern ideas and modern perspectives into the, into the text, but he is clearly encouraging us to bring them to the table. Do you think it's fair to say that what George wants us to do is look at Brienne and go, oh, interesting, a, a woman, you know, fighting an attorney. I wonder if she's clearly going to have some important role to play and then be kind of recoiling from Catelyn's perspective. Do you think that's what George is aiming for? Absolutely. And I think it's there's a there's a clear contrast to Tyrion, right, who is supposed to be the modern reader, the embodiment of the modern readers, like the scientific, skeptical, rational side. But when you get like, kind of scratch the surface of Tyrion, you find out that this guy is basically as shitty as everyone else is in Westeros, especially among the noble classes. But I also think there's something really fascinating, too, about Brienne's entry in the story and what she's going to do going forward, because as Renly's going to talk about with Catelyn later in this chapter, he was originally saving that final spot in the Rainbow Guard for Barristan Selmy, the guy who everyone looks at as being the greatest knight of all time. He's so chivalrous. He's done so many valorous deeds as he's going to recount in the White Book at significant length in Jamie's final chapter in Storm of Swords. But when you scratch the surface of Barristan Selmy, you find the guy who stood, saw, and did nothing. And I don't just mean to shade Barristan every single podcast that we're on, but at the same time, I do think that George at least probably had some idea in mind of who Barristan actually was under the surface and how when you get beyond that chivalrous look, all of the great and honorable deeds done in battle, you see someone that stands aside when horrors and moral atrocities are committed in the name of the king. Brienne is not the person who stands aside. Brienne is the person who stands up for the small folk, who defends the defenseless, who is the embodiment of the true knight. And I believe like you guys in Radio Westeros, you had called Brienne the true knight, right? Was that the, your episode title for your episode about Brienne of Tarth back in the day? I think it was something like that, the true knight. But yes, definitely um, something along those lines, for sure. And definitely uh, we we share that perspective of her. I mean, she's she's more knight than any night, uh, I think mm -hmm. she and uh, Sandra Clegane share that um, as being not knights and yet more knights than the knights, for sure. So we have these this well-established set of tones, themes, and images in Renly's camp, right? You have this image of generous magnificence with the implied threat underneath and all the advantages and disadvantages of Renly's approach to politics. And then you have our POV. You have Catelyn dropped into the middle of that. Not exactly to represent George's perspective, because I think he loves Brienne immediately and unabashedly. 
I think Catelyn more guides the audience in how to interpret Team Renly as a whole. She is both impressed and skeptical in face of the army, and that extends to the individuals with whom she's been sent to interact. And immediately she strikes this successful, experienced politician's balance of standing firm on Rob's legitimacy. You know, he's the king in the north, and I will not accept any, any you know, alterations to that. Well, at the same time, she doesn't exactly disavow Renly's legitimacy. She never says, oh, Renly's not the king in the south. Renly's not the king on the Iron <laughs> Throne. She more presents this as all a formality to get past. Now, of course, it's not really just a formality to get past. The question of whose crown counts activates everyone's passions and prejudices, especially Brienne's, as Jeff pointed out in the synopsis. But it is something that can be temporarily tabled as long as cooler heads prevail, which is something Stannis only gradually comes to learn as of a dance with dragons meeting with the mountain clans. What, talking to someone who doesn't immediately recognize me as king? I guess I can get around <laughs> to that idea. Catelyn also smooths things over by playing the role of a publicly grieving widow of a generally respected lord. She has a political advantage in terms of being the widow of Ned Stark, because everyone likes and trusts Ned Stark. It's interesting, by the way, that pretty much no one takes Ned's confession seriously. Like, in terms of any damage to his reputation, everyone seems to realize, oh, Cersei stage-managed the hell out of that. That means nothing. Mm -hmm. And you can see the effect of that because Ned's reputation is standing so strong that Renly and Marjorie feel the need to play nice with Catelyn, specifically as his widow. So that's, that's again, courtesy is armor, as Sansa would put it, is playing a role there. Now, it's interesting who doesn't feel the need to play nice is Randall Tarly. Because he's not one of the cooler heads. And yes, knowing what he did to Sam and knowing on Riri what he did to Brienne, it is so satisfying to watch Catelyn shut him down and say, You macho man with your gigantic sword, you are here playing in the dirt while my son is fighting the real business of war. So shut up. And it's perfect. And I love how <laughs> I love how Renly promptly throws Randall under the bus. Like, oh, go softly, Lord Tarly. I fear you're overmatched. In part to cover up how Catelyn's critique of people playing at war actually applies far more to him than it does to Randall. And this is all, it, you know, it, it's all politically astute what Renly is doing. But, but in military terms, you know, it's, it's both cowardly and morally dubious. Having said that, Renly does know the use of being open-handed. He immediately offers up his own pavilion to Catelyn while he, you know, enjoys the Caswell's castle. And it would be very easy for George to frame Renly as a perfect king for doing so. Hey, being open-handed and generous to someone who's a diplomat, not necessarily in your camp. Okay, that's a nice touch. But again, he uses Catelyn's POV to undercut that, to undercut that framing. George goes into ecstatic detail about all the niceties in Renly's tent. Oh, look, he has these, these peaches and plums and, and, you know, a fine hunting bow and these hunting birds, everything you could possibly want. <laughs> Only for Catelyn to remind us that this is greed as much as it is largesse, that this is literally weighing the host down. And metaphorically speaking, yeah, the image of being kept up by all this stuff is baggage. Like the image of Renly, Robert reborn with roses. It's like, it's like a top heavy cheesecake, like covered with too many strawberries. Yet, yeah, strictly speaking, it's delicious, but it is oversweet and ready to implode. And you see that just like in every frame, every image of this chapter. Catelyn looks at Renly's armor. And sees only herself looking back. Because as with Garland wearing that very armor to act as quote-unquote Renly's ghost at the Blackwater, it's a Rorschach blot. That's Renly. Like the comet, people project into Renly, whatever they want to see. That's what Brienne is doing. When the real thing is just that hollow suit of armor. It's just the image. It's just a ghost in a golden crown. The idea of the good king, a gardener given life to sweep the realm back into the ideal of wine and roses and sex, is a politically potent one, used to its full effect here. But seductive as it is, the image is not enough on its own, and it's all Renly has. Now, we're trashing Renly quite a bit here on the Not A Cast podcast, <laughs> as we are wont to do. To be fair, George does pause to know that Renly comes off very well at this dinner scene. 
at, at the castle of Bitterbetrava that he is getting along with everyone, both high and low. He is talking to the servants as if they're just as welcome there as any of the high lords and ladies, that he is enjoying his food and drink without gorging himself the way Robert did. I think you can see an arc in terms of Renly's image in these three Catalan chapters set in the south, two, three, and four. Renly gets less and less reasonable as it goes. You know what I mean? In Catalan 2, he mm-hmm. most lives up to the image he's projecting because, as Jeff said, he's kind of protected by these layers of people who believe in him so he can afford to live up to that image he's projecting. And yeah, there is a dramatic contrast between this dinner scene where everyone's getting along and laughing and having a great time with that silent, grim affair at Dragonstone in the prologue <laughs> in which Stannis won't even let you talk loudly. <laughs> like, which one of those two dinners would you want to be at, especially if you're young and dumb? Like, as, as with Brand 3, there is a sense of a party going a little too long. You know, everyone's getting a little too drunk. And all of that is, is compounded by the grief of our POV. You know, both Brand and Catelyn just feel like Charlie Brown at Christmas, unable to fully understand or fully participate in the communal joy and feasting taking place around them. They both feel like the odd one out. The big difference between these two chapters, however, and what makes them melancholy in different ways, is the age of our respective POVs. Bran is still a child, and all the cycles of life and death and everything else we're talking about, they're new to him. He's only barely begun to perceive the pattern of the story. Catelyn, by contrast, knows this song. She's heard it so many times before, and she knows exactly how it ends. And so that's how you get the Knights of Summer dialogue, which is really one of the most deeply felt passages in A Song of Ice and Fire, and one of the most central to the story's meaning. You have Mathis Rowan sitting next to Catelyn, and he, he's, like her, he's old enough to have some perspective. He's like, ah, oh, they're so young. He's not laughing along with them. But unlike Catelyn, he doesn't pity the next generation. He looks upon them with fondness and not a little envy when he's talking about how lusty they are and they're going to get up to having a lot of sex tonight. He's a little jealous that he's not as young and lusty as he used to be. And this sums up how the Lords of the Reach, even as they've aged, haven't really matured. They haven't really let go of this youthful idea so much as they've been forced out of it by age, and they're kind of inflicting it on their sons. You see that with Mason and Willis, you see that with Randall and Sam. And Catelyn has, has a little more little more experienced view of these things, because she had a harder war last time around than Mathis Rowan. She had a much harder experience of Robert's Rebellion, and she's had a harder war this time around as well, so she's much less sanguine about these things. And so she expresses something in this, this you know, they are the nights of summer and winter is coming. It does not last. That's something George dwells on again and again in this story. The ideal of youth, promise, summer, story, fading in the face of mortality. In the meta sense, I think it's the arc of a blindly trusting fantasy young reader to an adult more cynical of stories' promise of uplift and transformation through imagination. In a generational sense, like I was saying much earlier in the episode, this is once more George working in some commentary on the disillusionment of 60s-era hopes of progress. Like, this is Woodstock, what we're seeing in this chapter, and Altamont is coming. You can even see the Battle of Blockwater as this cruise Vietnam. In a character sense, the fact that Catelyn is bringing up the stark words at this moment means so much. Like, that, mm-hmm. that she's saying, oh, nothing lasts because winter is coming. So that ties Catelyn's disillusionment with age to her move north from Riverrun, cradle of her memories of childhood innocence, to Winterfell, home of the gods that loves her not. What she's saying is, winter is coming, winter came for me. I associate Winterfell and the north with the time I came of age and had to leave all these songs and stories of of childhood behind. And of course, that contrast of, of summer and winter, ice and fire, you know, I can't help but remind you of the cold breath of the White Walkers hanging over the entire series. They are the winter that is coming. And they embody death, as we talked about during Season 8. And we see that so, so strongly here with Catelyn noting that ultimately death is what eats away at all these promises of youth. And Brienne, she just comes back with not like we're never going to die, 
but she insists that the stories and songs will confer upon them immortality, that it will be as if we never died because of how we lived. And this is, I don't know, maybe you could argue this is the central question of the series. What do you do with your beloved stories in the face of the fall? Just ask Jojen Reed, how do you grow up with the knowledge of death, the certainty amidst summer nights that winter is coming? It's not just literal death, but the death of the dream that haunts Catelyn, the, the death of the ideal that you were striving towards, that you were living for, what was it all worth? Like for Brienne, the worst thing she can imagine is death, and then I will be gone and live forever in the songs. What she hasn't had to live with yet, but she will, is, is failure, is trying to make that song real and failing to make it happen, and that's what Catelyn is living with, and she feels like she's the only one in the room who realizes. Again, it's like with, with Brienne in the last chapter, she's the only one who feels like she's dining amidst a sea of corpses. George is going to make that explicit in Brienne's Feast for Crows chapters, which are all about failure, right? She doesn't find Sansa Stark. She doesn't find Arya Stark. She finds only the Brotherhood Without Banners. And she finds Catelyn again, which is... A Hooray? Great, no, no, it's not. Hooray. Yay. You got Catelyn again. <laughs> she can't even uh, help her nimble dick crab. She can't do anything right. right. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I never trusted you. That is the end state of, of Brienne mm-hmm. of Tarth. I think... It's it's fascinating to me how Brienne is both extraordinarily suspicious of those around her because of she knows that they all are fucking monsters to her, like deep down inside, and they've all treated her, all of these stormlords, all of these reach lords, and all of their sons and heirs and cousins and nephews, they've all been horrific to her in her entire growing up experience. But yet she still clings to that chivalry, that that virtue, that sense of of belonging and knighthood of greater and more evocative per, uh, something that evokes just a sense of purpose that she so desperately needs to make all this make sense we've we talked we talked about a couple times about how Catelyn's worldview is crumbling around her but she still clings to this idea that the norms could be brought back and that just because like shit's going bad and there's war everywhere and Joffrey's on the throne and Ned has been murdered and Rob is in severe danger that if only we could all just bring this back together we could piece it all back together slowly and we could have to, because we, we have these ideals that exist beyond the personalities that I have to deal with every day which just sucks Brienne is similar to that right she's the person who's saying like yeah the whole concept of chivalry is bullshit because I've been interacting with all of these chivalrous knights and they've all done terrible things to to me they've called me names behind my back they've attempted to try and wed my claim they've attempted to try to claim my virginity in order all just to win some money but you know but the ideal is still there I just have to cling to that ideal it's it's all that I can if we could just piece it all back together my life can be worth something and it could be important and oh man you just feel for Brienne so so much in this in this chapter it's that level of complication that that Brienne can't live with that really jars with the image Renly is presenting here and like you say yeah Brienne's received challenges to this worldview but something I think is that George really understands in this series is that when you receive a challenge to your worldview most of the time you don't go oh well I rationally should question the rest of my precepts to see if they're true no you you cling to your challenged worldview all the harder because it was challenged And I think that's what Brienne is undergoing here as we see through the rest of her story. But ultimately, this chapter boils down to who Renly is when the songs are distant echoes, when the campfires are only sparks down below, when the crowd isn't watching. He draws Catelyn away from the party and he speaks with only the finest of courtesies. Your husband was a good man. I am merely following in Robert's footsteps. Your son must follow his ancestor Torrance's wise example and help me end the war. And it's easy to be taken in by Renly's smooth talk here. I mean, Stannis matches him in terms of promising justice for Ned's death. But being Stannis, he can't help but harp on about how he should have been Robert's hand instead. And he openly threatens Rob's life to Catelyn's face. 
Renly, it's it's easy to be taken in by him because he's much more appealing than that. And he is right that a Tyrell, Baratheon, Stark, Tully alliance would be an absolute powerhouse. Clearly the best choice available on the surface. And on the surface is perpetually the Renly problem, <laughs> as we saw with Crescent's diagnosis of him back in the prologue, and well again with Elena's in A Storm of Swords, when she says that he knew how to bathe and smile and dress, and somehow he got the idea that that made him fit to be king. He's being wildly optimistic throughout this conversation with Catelyn, which is understandable given that sea of campfires at his back. But of course, we know that he is very much wrong about the Dornish inevitably joining him. And what he leaves out of the comparison to Aegon the Conqueror with Rob as Torrin who must bend the knee is that Renly has no dragons, no military record. And instead of five of the Seven Kingdoms at his back, like Aegon had when he came north, he has most, not all, of two. So really, that comparison is, is, is Renly counting all his, his eggs before they've hatched. <laughs> yeah, no, really. Uh, is it obvious by now that his philosophy of warfare is pretty much summed up as God's favorite big battalions, right? <laughs> uh, but he, he assumed this alliance of sorts with Rob, who he says he expects to have an army of 40,000 or more men. He spoke about his expectations of Dorne. Uh, and so it's, it should be clear that his dreams, I mean, these 80,000 that he's showing Catelyn are nothing compared to his dreams. Uh, he, he thinks he could be marching on King's Landing with an army of well over 150,000 if he could make this alliance work. But he reckons without several things. Uh, Dora Martell's innate caution, which, duh, everybody knows about that. Uh, <laughs> Tyrion Lannister's astute political mind, which... Maybe everyone doesn't know about that. And his brother Stannis's obdurate persistence about his own rights under Westerosi law. <laughs> How could he miss that? Uh, George has said uh, regarding Dorne that Doran Martell plays to win, whether it's Savas or the Game of Thrones. And likely he didn't see Renly as a winner. The enmity between Dorne and Highgarden also played a part, I'm sure. So, you know, Dorne might have initially leaned in Renly's direction. I, mean, I think he probably did. Remember the size of Renly's army? You know, Dorne is playing to win, so he, he would probably tend to side with whoever he thought was in the strongest position. But we can't forget what we learn later on, right, about Dorne vis-a-vis his plans for vengeance and his secret alliance with exiled Targaryens. So it's really hard to say how that would have factored into any decisions that he made on Renly had Renly defeated or worked out this <laughs> alliance with Stannis. We don't know what he was thinking, honestly. But I think the one thing that seems plain is that by all appearances, um, Doran's alliance with the Lannisters came about only once it was clear that Renly and Stannis were going to be in opposition to each other and that there would be no easy victory. Uh, so that that sort of was the, obviously, Stannis, arguably the smallest part of this building block of this gigantic army that Renly was dreaming of building, um, it turns out to be the little piece that makes it all crumble away. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, too, Tyrion in, in Tyrion's fifth chapter, what we did a few weeks ago, is extraordinarily confident in like a certain set of dominoes have to fall a certain set of ways and then everything is going to be just fine. It's that sense of overconfidence and arrogance that Tyrion is bringing to his mentality and how he's thinking through how the War of the Five mm. Kings is going to progress that Renly also has here. 
he thinks <laughs> Lady Gwen, you brought up the point so so well that you know Renly is thinking like, oh, Dorne is going to join me, and Stannis, he too is going to join me too with the Narrow Lords. And Catelyn's like, have, have you forgotten Stannis, who, who this guy is? Like, he, he's your brother, <laughs> and he has the better claim to the Iron Throne. Do you think he's just gonna lay down and just let you like kind of walk over him and take his armies and his navy? No, you 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 need to know your brother better, and it's clear at some level that Renly's overconfidence. At some level, was being fed by the people around him too. There's again, there's no one that's really challenging his perspective. There's there's no Catelyn Stark in his company, right? There's no one. There's no Great John Umber who's going to stand up and demand that he's going to lead the vanguard. And Rob has to put this guy down very very quickly and assert his authority over him in a Game of Thrones. None of that exists for Renly. He's got a bunch of yes men around him, and he's got a big army, and he thinks that's going to be fine, and he doesn't have to really think through how he's actually going to win this. You you point out that the gods favor the big battalions, which is a, a great line. I remember you guys putting that in one of your episodes, which is fantastic. I've always kept that in mind. Um, but regardless, like when you look at what Renly's battlefield tactics were as he's about to confront Stannis Baratheon, there doesn't really seem to be anything besides throw everyone at Stannis Baratheon and, you know, 15,000 people die on the on the march against Stannis. That's fine, as long as we ultimately win. I, is, is that the kind of guy you want as the king who's going to throw lives away because you've got the advantage numbers? I don't think so. And I'm right. The problem with creating mm-hmm. the, this party atmosphere is that anyone who tells you anything you don't want to hear becomes the person who's ruining the party. So it's very easy to shut <laughs> right. them down. And along the way, Renly has developed a lot of blind spots. Like when he's making this offer to Catelyn over, just come on over to my side, he's completely avoiding how it is that the North ended up independent in the first place. He is, <laughs> he is dodging the ideology of Northern independence. Remember what the great John said? Here is what I say to these two kings meaning Joffrey and Renly. He spat. Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in Highgarden or Dorne? What do they know of the Wall or the Wolf's Wood or the Barrows of the First Men? Even their gods are wrong. The others take the Lannisters too. I've had a belly full of them. As we said back in A Game of Thrones, Catelyn 11, he like mentions the Lannisters in passing at the end of that speech. Most of that speech is actually aimed at the Baratheons not the Lannisters. Mm-hmm. And that's something Renly doesn't have an answer for. Like, imagine this this scenario goes as Renly is intending, that Rob bends the knee. Renly Baratheon is, let's be frank, a caricature of what Northern Lords believe Southern Lords to be like. So this is Rob declaring, I will take you away from men like that. Nah, actually, I've changed my mind. I'm going to bend the knee to the person who confirms all of your worst fears. So you got to ask, <laughs> if Rob did this, would he even be in a political position to hold the North together on Renly's behalf thereafter? Could he even be an effective warden of the North for Renly? Probably not. He'd be politically screwed. Note also that Renly doesn't say anything about Rob, you know, being allowed to put up his sword and go home to raise free babies, as Catelyn so desperately desires. Presumably part of this deal is that Rob continue to fight the Lannisters. And indeed, Renly lets slip that Rob is his ideal offensive lineman at this point. Tell me, when does your son mean to march against Hall? Until she knew whether this king was friend or foe, Catelyn was not about to reveal the least part of Rob's dispositions. I do not sit on my son's war councils, my lord. Well, so long as he leaves a few Lannisters for me, I'll not complain. How telling a line is that? So the question becomes, if Rob is going to continue fighting the Lannisters, as he has, and has to go through a huge political rigmarole to even become part of Team Renly, what is Rob getting out of this deal at all? And the answer is simple. He gets to not be killed by Renly. King is only a word, but fealty, loyalty, service, those I must have. And if he will not give them to you, my lord? 
I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. And he really can't. Like, Renly is the good cop. DeSantis is bad cop. Thing is, though, the good cop is still a cop, and he's still trying to screw you over. He's still not on your side. He just benefits from you thinking that he's on your side. Does it matter that he's nicer about it, really, when he's threatening your life? Now, Stannis is not offering anything better than that to the North right now. His approach to the North changes somewhat in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons. Right now, Stannis is offering the North pretty much the same thing. Bend the knee or I'll kill you. But at least he has the better legal claim to do so, as Catelyn points out. <laughs> and, and, and Renly's response to that, to Catelyn pointing out, Hey, all of this imagery and greatness aside, Stannis is still ahead of you. How do you deal with that? Renly's response is really what gives away that it's all a house of cards, which will continue over the course of Catelyn 3 and 4. But this is where you see where George brings his focus to bear on the on the, the Baratheon triangle, on these three brothers and what the image of Robert did to all three of them. Mm-hmm. And in this passage that uh, uh, right there begins literally with Renly shrugging Stannis's claim away. So he shrugs and he says, what right did my brother Robert ever have to the Iron Throne? You know, he just, he's, yeah, Stannis and his claim, you know, we can, we can deal with that. Uh, but it really gets to the heart of Renly's worldview, his, and his viewpoint about his brothers. This, like you said, the triangle of the Baratheon boys, it's, it was made explicit in the Crescent Prologue, right? That was there for a reason. It set up this triangle for us. And here we see Renly intentionally modeling himself on the big bro everyone loved, but he makes a critical mistake of failing to recognize the nature of the middle child. Uh, he assumes that, like we said before, Stannis is somehow going to just stop being an obstacle. Um, maybe he was hoping that uh, he would see the strength that Renly had massed here and um, simply decide to support him the way he did Robert, you know, because, uh, I mean, that was a choice that he made, that Stannis uh, chose to support his brother Robert uh, in favor of, you know, whoever was the, quote, rightful king. So, but, you know, in this, Renly seems to me to be plainly unaware of the internal struggle that Stannis had over that decision. You know, he said uh, to Davos, if you only knew that was a hard choosing, my blood or my liege, my brother or my king. You know, but when my king devolves to actually being himself, <laughs> it's not very likely that somebody like Stannis is just going to accede to Renly's claim and, and roll over and go, okay, you know, you've got a bigger army. Um, so <laughs> fine, go ahead. So Renly's assertions here about large army and Stannis's unpopularity and stuff, not to mention that his belief in his own suitability for rule, they really contribute to his his claim. But as George would say, you know, Renly's, Renly's not modest. He's, he's out there um, beating his own drum, and um, therefore he wasn't afraid to uh, lean into uh, creating a parallel between himself and his war hero, Big Brother. Uh, and hope that his other brother would get on board with it. What I think is, is fascinating too, if you look at Renly and Stannis and you compare them to the other brother figures that we have in the story, if only these two could have been Oberyn and Doran Martell, if only they could have been, I don't know, I guess Brendan and Hoster Tully at, at some level, like if only they could work together like they have 
the complete makeup of a pretty decent ruling family. You have Renly as the outward-facing, pleasant dude who can do public relations, and you've got Stannis on the inside doing the actual leading and ruling and, you know, all the stuff that the king is supposed to do. And, and I, this is something we brought up when we were talking about the prologue for, for A Clash of Kings. Like, George has basically the three Baratheons as representing different parts of what could be an actually pretty decent king. Put them all together, like kind of split them all into spare parts and reassemble them to, you know, proto the the big uh, the, the big Baratheon king. It's, it's a pretty good combination. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, like we were saying for the prologue in Davos 1 and for this chapter 2, they can't stand each other. They can't much like Hoster and Brendan, even much worse than Hoster and Brendan Tully, they hate each other openly. And they've got, at least Stannis has good reasons to hate Renly. I, I feel like Renly doesn't have as good of as, as reasons to hate Stannis besides they have different personalities. I think I think Tyrion gets to the heart of it when he says the real problem with Renly and Stannis isn't that they're too different, it's that, it's that they're too similar. It's that, mm. that they're too bone-deep stubborn to ever allow the other person to be in charge. And it's both because they're trying to live up to the image of Robert in very different ways. I love that when Renly is finally push comes to shove and he's asked to justify himself. Why exactly should you be in charge other than just deciding you already are? And the reason he says is, oh, because Robert did it. Because my claim is as good as Robert's ever was. What right did Robert ever have to the throne? Again, this is the oh. this is the core of his character. I am Robert Reborn. This is the reason he's so strong politically. The problem is that comparison falls apart when you look at their actions, motivations, and coalition. Really, all Robert and Renly have in common is they have an army. That's it. <laughs> for for Robert, like. for Robert, it really was about you know glory and getting Lyanna back. The crown was secondary; it was a symbol of the glory at best. For Renly, it's the other way around. The, the glory is a means to an end. It's his way of getting into power. Like, he's a version of Robert who was in on the South Run Ambitions conspiracy from the start, which I don't, I never got the impression Robert was. Renly is someone who knows about it. Like, one of Renly's earliest appearances is so telling. He's asking Ned if Marjorie looks enough like Lyanna to woo Robert. Does the present look enough like the past to capture everybody? That's what Renly represents. Weaponized nostalgia. It's the difference between being a Knight of Summer, which Robert genuinely was, versus taking advantage of them kind of coldly. So while Robert rode from battle to battle, like Damon Blackfire, building his army until it was strong enough to confront his nemesis and then doing so, Renly's been holding back. Moreover, Renly's argument is, is actually bullshit even when you break it down to the specifics. Like, wait, Robert actually didn't have the biggest army at any point during Robert's Rebellion. Even after the Trident, Mace Tyrell still had more men. But he bent the knee because the politics had turned against them. So what happens if the politics turn against Renly while he's taking his time? What happens if something happens wherein having the biggest army doesn't mean as much anymore? And oh yeah, remember Mace Tyrell's big army in Robert's Rebellion? Which side were they on again? Were they on Robert's side? No. They were on the Mad King's side. They were on the other side of the rebellion. Most of these lords were starving Renly 15 years back. They can't claim to be upholding the rebellion's tradition. And hey, if they fought for the Mad King, that means they don't care about charismatic magnificence all that much. Because the Mad King very much did not live up to that standard. Again, it's all the surface. It's none of the substance. Meanwhile, Stannis got all the substance, none of the surface. They were designed to hate each other, designed to try to kill each other. Ultimately, all Renly's power comes down to is a show of force, but he has a vested interest in pretending it's something more than that. So he'll talk about how the throne really should go to the brother best suited. 
but wait a minute, is that going to apply to the next generation? Is that how things are going to mm-hmm. work for Renly's kids? No, of course not. That's not what Mace Terrell wants. Mace Terrell wants the security of Marjorie's firstborn son following Renly onto the throne. So Renly has, is in this position where he has to... He has to keep squirming away from the base treachery of what he's doing, however noble he can claim his intentions to be. This is such a marvelously written dialogue scene because it's one person trying to get a straight answer out of another person. And the second person has it in their complete interest to obfuscate and bullshit everything to hell. Absolutely. He's incredibly disingenuous in this whole passage. He's very careful to draw comparisons between his claim, Robert's claim, but on the face of it... um, Why did he even put himself forward? What was his legitimate cause for, you know, for putting himself forward? What what is he telling people? Uh, Back at River Run and Game of Thrones, uh, Rob had summed this whole situation up. He saying, you know, uh, because uh, Joffrey killed his father, that makes Joffrey evil, but it doesn't make Renly king. Joffrey is Robert's eldest trueborn son. So why doesn't the... The throne is is his by all the laws of the realm. Um, incidentally, as an aside, since Robert recognized um, Joffrey as his son, you know, according to medieval law, you know, as long as Robert never sort of unrecognized him, like what could what could be done about it? Not much. Um, but uh, if Joffrey dies, um, you know, Rob points out he's he's got a younger brother. And, and then, of course, there's Stannis. So Renly, he counts it out. Renly's fourth in line behind Joffrey. Um, so even if you do somehow manage to rule out the, the children, um, then, then Stannis obviously has a better claim. I mean, it, it seems obvious to anyone who's looking at it in, in those terms. But so why then did Renly take this step to declare himself king? And what did he expect was going to happen? Uh, and I think the obvious answer is... Um, as far as Joffrey and Tommen go, is that Renly was aware all along mm-hmm. um, of Cersei's incest and of the bastardy of her children. Um, so in spite of his later assertion that he was not, uh, disingenuity again upon, you know, so uh, how did he justify ignoring Stannis's superior claim? Publicly. Um so I think possible answers are found right here in this chapter. He he claims to Catelyn that, um, you know, Ned refused his offer of alliance after Robert's death. Oh, had he listened, he'd be regent today and there would have been no need for me to claim the throne. <laughs> but remember, on that same night back in King's Landing, Littlefinger says to Ned, oh, just you know, take Joffrey, you know, under your protection. It'll be four years before Joffrey comes of age. By then, he'll look at you as a second father. And if not, well, four years is a good long while, long enough to dispose of Lord Sanus. <laughs> then should Joffrey prove troublesome, we'll reveal his little secret and put Lord Renly on the throne. Oh, yeah, like Renly never discussed this with Littlefinger, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Renly really just hoped that his big bro's old buddy would support him and his great big army, and failing that, uh, maybe that the buddy's son and heir would support him in his place. You know, it comes back to the Robert parallel again, trying to lend legitimacy to his cause by leaning on this uh, similarity to his big brother. Uh, so as for the treachery, 
that you asked about, Emmett. You know, we know that Cersei saw um, Robert's brothers as a threat to her and planned to get rid of both of them. Uh, Renly tell, tells Cat in this chapter, I lack the strength to act alone, so when Lord Eddard turned me away, I had no choice but to flee. Had I stayed, I knew the queen would see to it that I did not long outlive my brother. This isn't very likely that Stannis was equally aware of the threat from St- from Cersei. He, he spent all of Game of Thrones lurking on Dragonstone, <laughs> avoiding everybody, get, gathering his army. Uh, nobody really knew what he was doing, but he was basically trying not to be killed by Cersei. Uh, but given Littlefinger's words to Ned about disposing of Lord Stannis, I think the implication is clearly uh, that the two are in league together. And that the threat to Stannis wasn't limited to Cersei. So there's your treachery right there. Renly never really intended to make a, a, a peace with his brother Stannis. He intended to get rid of him, dispose of him. Stannis really is the fly in the ointment in that way for both the Lannisters and Renly. He's the inconvenient detail you have to remove because if he's there with his obnoxious insistence on things being true, (laughs) that's just going to ruin our nice little tableau that we're putting on for everybody. You can't have a man like that in our party. He's going to ruin the party. And you see that with both the Lannisters and Renly. It's not even that they hate Stannis so much that they're just exasperated with him. Like, they just roll his eyes, like, still with him. Stannis, Stannis. You can see a lot of foot stomping and just, yep. can, can someone just make him go away? Everyone sees him coming, yeah. takes an extra shot just to have to deal with him. Yeah, this is, again, <laughs> the exact opposite of Renly, the life of the party. And yet, and yet, they have so much in common. Because you have both Stannis in A Storm of Swords saying, I am king, wants to not enter into it. And you have Renly here saying that, oh, I, I didn't want the Iron Throne. I didn't, wasn't trying to take it for myself. It just, you know, events just happened to have transpired in the direction that now leads me to being king of Westeros. In both cases, it's bullshit. Renly and Stannis absolutely want the throne. They want what Robert had for very different reasons. And the bitter irony, of course, is that Robert hated what he had once he had it. Turns out the crown and the throne didn't make him happy. So would it make Renly or Stannis happy? Probably not. They were just left with the image of Robert. Stannis is left with his lonely island and his gritted teeth and the fading memory of a bird that loved him. And Renly's left with this like really spooky like uncanny valley recreation of young Robert. Like he's like Carrie Fisher or Peter Cushing when they've been CGI'd into the new Star Wars. Like that's what Renly's like. Like, ugh, this is young Robert technically, but this is this is unreal. And he's got like the bride that looks enough like Lyanna to fool the eye. It, it's the image of youth. And what Catalan realizes is the image of youth is, is, you know, it's catching in the film great and it's starting to burn. That image holds as long as everyone plays along. But the drawback to Renly's slow approach is that it's prone to disruption, as we see at the end of this chapter, as Stannis finally enters the game by arriving on Westeros to lay siege to Storm's End. And immediately, Renly has to abandon his strategy and run off with a smaller version of his (laughs) army and engage in a battle with Stannis, which, as Jeff points out, he might have lost even if a shadow assassin didn't show up. That's what Renly turned out to be worth. All this, this pomp and circumstance, this huge army, all this big talk one charge against Stannis that he might have lost and didn't even get to do because Stannis killed him first. That's what it all amounted to. That's what all the buildup in this chapter was. What a joke. It gives out like nothing. Such are the wages of being a warlord. It turns out when you build everything on a song, that can be really powerful. But when the song ends, you look around, suddenly no one's there. Renly hasn't thought through the consequences of what happens of him taking jumping ahead in the line of succession of becoming the king of Westeros. What does that mean for every single second, third, fourth son of these lords? Are they going to be able to stake a claim to their father's throne or their father's lordship if 
if Renly is the king, they've got that the example of the king of Westeros sitting on the Iron Throne in, in this imagined circumstance where Renly doesn't get justifiably shadow babied at Storm's End of having the king up top there jumping the line of succession. You, Renly, is without thinking it through and with soul sourcing his claim to legitimacy on him and him alone doesn't recognize and realize what that the threat it actually poses to the social order of Westeros. Now, I am not defending feudalism. I do not think that feudalism is worth really defending. I am saying that the idea of having massive mini civil wars throughout all of Westeros and shedding the blood over multiple claims to a single lordship of High Garden, of River Run, of the Erie, of even minor castles that we find all over pep- of minor castles we find papering all over Westeros. This is a this is a bad thing. Basically setting up a, a, an example that civil wars can go on and on and on forever and ever means that it, it's not well thought that Renly's claim is not well thought through. The reality is that it's going to cause many more smaller wars and likely lead to much more bloodshed if, of course, Renly wasn't shadow baby by stance righteously at Storm's End. I kind of agree, but like we've seen like fights over younger brothers versus little brothers for succession before in Westeros that didn't lead to every house turning in on themselves just because of the idea of a younger brother had been seeded into people. For me, I think with Renly, the problem is, is that it's not actually a social revolution. It's that it's going to be his firstborn right. son by Marjorie who takes over. It's not actually a big social change. It's just Renly. And that, that for me is really just kind of the giveaway with all of this. It's, it's the buildup and a big steam ahead to change everything. But ultimately, yeah, politically, I think this is a step backwards for Westeros, what Renly represents. Renly mm-hmm. is Cal Drogo with a smiley face pasted on. He's, he's, not, he's, not the fu- mm-hmm. he's not the future of Westeros. He's the past. I think that's what this whole chapter is telling you. Here's the past. Isn't it nice? Now let it go. And Westeros just can't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for our depth section of this podcast episode. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. To kind of jump into a little bit of the foreshadowing groundwork, we will kind of run through these a little bit more quickly because we do have an excellent discussion at the end of this episode. Our first, or not our first, part three of our Stone Heart foreshadowing watch. Steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate, gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? Yes, Catelyn, you can drown in grief as you are going to find out at the Red Wedding where your tears are going to drown in your grief and you're going to rise up again. You are going to see your ghost in a drowned woman as your body is flung into the trident, right? As she's thrown to the trident or the green fork. Mm, the green fork, I believe, yeah. right below the, the twins. Yeah. Green, yep. green, yes. Yep. yes. Right, exactly. I didn't even put that together. She sees she sees her face in the green pond, the green armor, and then she rises from the green fork. Oh, that's perfect. But yeah, that's just a, a chilling little moment of Catelyn looking back and seeing seeing Stoneheart like glaring back at her from the mirror just for an instant. And yeah, that's what I love. One of the great things we've been talking about with this chapter that George never loses Catelyn. He never loses sight of our POV, even amidst all the the you know finely choreographed mayhem he's he's you know bringing up in this chapter. He still clings on to Catelyn's emotional arc. So I do love that. Something else that a uh, Changes completely on reread is Brienne's f- fury against her competitors. When you come back after a feast for crows, you realize this is not just Brienne proving herself to Renly. This is Brienne taking down many of the lords who have been, you know, horrible to her in the past, including the people who played that cruel quote unquote game where they were, you know, betting over who would seize her maidenhood first. And some of them were starting to think about doing it by force. 
And that's just, it lends a whole other layer to everything we're talking about this chapter, that you have the idea of knighthood and chivalry and virtue, but the people practicing it don't actually live up to those values when, you know, when the camera's not on them, when Renly's not looking, when the crowd isn't looking. And the person they take it out on is a woman, someone they're supposed to defend, but they don't particularly care because she doesn't fit their glorious, virtuous image of what a woman looks like, like Marjorie Terrell does. So it's this bitter irony of the person who just wants to belong, the person who actually does live up to those values, being told she can't belong by the people who aren't living up to those values. That really, really sticks in your teeth, and that's something that just completely reframed. For me, that completely reframes this whole chapter is knowing that, oh, like, oh, right, these are those assholes. The people smiling and getting <laughs> drunk with Catelyn, those assholes. And you got to keep that in mind. It's, it's great. I mean, Lady Gwynne brought up the point about Lord Caswell, about how he was a little shit in his earlier day. I love that expansion of the story and how like we are, we get to have this scene here in Catelyn's second chapter in A Clash of Kings. But then we learn more and more about this scene from A Clash of Kings as the story progresses forward. I, I love that aspect of, of George kind of filling in the details of showing us what these people were actually like beyond the cheers of, of, of watching the melee and of participating in the melee of that they're all just mostly horrible all of them well not all of them mostly all of them are horrible a couple of them join status so they're okay (laughs) speaking of folks who are uh supposedly supposed to be super chivalrous and knightly we have barristan renly mentions barristan here and he's wondering if rob's joined if he's joined rob's side and that's something that's going to happen at storm's end which i believe is it stannis who asks Catelyn, if, if Rob, if, if Barristan has joined her, her son's side or someone like that, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, R- Renly says, if Barristan is found among Stannis's army, spare him and have ah. him brought to my side. And he says, Barristan yes, must be with Stannis because he's not with me. He's not with Rob. It's it's putting that lampshade on there for yeah. the audience. Right. Where and of could course, he be? is out <laughs> trying to find the true king, which of course is Viserys Targaryen. Is that the, the true king? Ooh. According to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Golly. Yes, and we will find we will meet up with Barrison, the guys of Arson Whitebeard at the end of the Clash of Kings as he saves Danny's life in Carth. It's this great, you know, dangling element that George brings up to our face in, in these couple of Catalan chapters. Hey, remember Barristan, that guy from the first book? Wonder what happened to him? Is he still around as a character <laughs> in this story? George is trying to keep that in your mind to go, oh yeah, that guy. And so that's all all seated in so this Arston Whitebeard can have context when he shows up, and you get the big reveal in Storm of Swords. Oh, it's Barristan. And I think it's, I think that would be a less effective a reveal if George hadn't kept us, kept Barristan in our mind the whole time. So this is just yes. a nice way. It's, 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 an, it's an organic way of weaving him into conversation of everyone wondering, oh yeah, this guy who would be really useful on anyone's side, who embodies knightly virtue, where is he? And he's the place none of them would expect in the Far mm-hmm. East. So that's just, that's just wonderful stuff. So for our discussion portion of this episode, we wanted to talk about like, a sort of confluence of a lot of images and idea in George's writing. Because this chapter, I think, is, is, is the linchpin for a lot of things George is doing with a lot of different characters, which sounds very general, I know, but I'll, I'll let uh, Lady Gwynne start us off here. Yeah, this this one sort of uh, <clears throat> leads into the, the big one we're going to discuss, but uh, earlier Jeff mentioned taking note of seeds and groundwork. Uh, so from, uh, from a high level, Brienne of Tarth as Sir Duncan the Tall's descendant it has been confirmed, uh, but that theory or that idea or you know that that wondering all started in this chapter right when she's first introduced when we see her defeat her first opponent uh there's here's a line um from the very end of her her duel 
or with uh, Loris Tyrell, says they crashed to the ground with bone-jarring force. Loris Tyrell on the bottom took the brunt of the impact. The Blue Knight pulled a long dirk free and flicked open Tyrell's visor. The roar of the crowd was too loud for Catelyn to hear what Sir Loras said, but she saw the word form on his split bloody lips. Yield. Now, compare that to the circumstances of Sir Duncan the Tall defeating Arian Targaryen in his Trial of Seven in the Hedge Knight. He rolled into Arian's legs, threw a steel-clad arm around his thigh, dragged him, cursing into the mud, rolled on top of him, he could vanquish Sir Dunk in the tall, but not Dunk of Flea Bottom. Dunk flung the battered shield away and wrenched up the visor of Arion's helm. Uh, it says uh, that he had a sudden urge to grab, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here, to grab one of Arion's eyes because they were big, like big purple grapes. Um, <laughs> but the point is that at the end, with his visor open and Dunk's. Uh, you know, blade pointing at him, Arian says, yield, just mm. like Loris. So these two scenes are so similar and they were published so close together with the Hedge Knight being published um, in the exact same year as mm-hmm. uh, Clash of Kings. 98. So it's 1998. It's very easy to imagine George writing them in tandem. And even if he wasn't writing them right side by side, I mean, it's impossible to imagine that he forgot the details of whichever was the first one he sat down, right? So we have to assume this is intentional. And as the story of Sir Duncan and Brienne progress in tandem, it becomes even more obvious when we see Brienne fight Jaime Lannister in a river in A Storm of Swords. And mm-hmm. then in The Sworn Sword, shortly after, Sir Duncan fights Sir Lucas Longinch in a river. Then finally in A Feast for Crows, Shagwell ambushes Brienne near a well with a rock, but Brienne had a dagger up her sleeve. Then, in The Mystery Night, published five years later, but possibly completed a little earlier, uh, you see Alan Cockshaw ambushing Dunk near a well, but in an inversion, Sir Alan had the dagger and Dunk the rock. So this time George was able to correct his rock, paper, scissors analogy. (laughs) (laughs) But in both cases, it's pretty clear that what really won the day is the sheer size of the victor. Um, so there's so much more to this him to George laying out the case that Brienne is Dunk's descendant. But in terms of groundwork, our very first glimpse of Brienne in this chapter, uh, before we even know her name or her gender, is gives us the very first clue to her heritage. Uh, I just think it's a marvelous look if you follow that all the way through and all the little things that he kind of all the other things that he layers in there um, at the complexity and just the, you know, of the way that George writes things like this. And and this is just a tiny little thread in the big tapestry of A Song of Ice and Fire. That that connection, though, between Brienne and Dunk is so perfect because it really does seem like so many ideas and images came together in parallel with A Song of Ice and Fire and Dunk and Egg, and that he was working these out at the same time in A Clash of Kings as he was in The Hedge Knight, that they were informing each other. So you can say, you can see that as he builds Renly and Brienne and these, this set of characters and set of images in this camp, you could argue that at the same time he is coming up with the details that inform the Dunk and Egg part of the story, in particular, the Blackfires. Right. So it's interesting that and, and we're, I'm, I'm coming right off of watching The Rise of Skywalker, where a very 
valid criticism of it without spoiling the movie for anyone who hasn't seen it is that there was not a lack of there was a complete lack of world building which contributed to a lessening of the plot which I think is a very true complaint about that book George goes the exact opposite way in that he does a phenomenal job of developing the world of A Song of Ice and Fire and expanding it from A Game of Thrones to A Clash of Kings now George had drawn maps of all of Westeros by the time he had published A Game of Thrones. I believe there's some early maps that uh, our, our friend Adam Whitehead, Wordhead, had shown people on, on Reddit maybe a few months ago that I'll have to see if I can find it to link it in the show notes for the, those of you who are patrons. But it's very likely that George was thinking about the backstory and about the history of the new places that he was expanding upon in, in the world. And it's likely that the character of Damon Blackfire, who we've been talking about at a significant length, was imagined up around this time, though whether George had a Targaryen pretender imagined for Danny from the get-go is a separate topic, and there's lots of debate around that <laughs> in, on, the, on the meta side of the fandom. The first references for the Blackfires in George's mind came around 1998 and 1999, and this came from a video that Elio and Linda put out around the time after The World of Ice and Fire was released, in which, El- in which Linda says, when we got those old notes that we mentioned before from George, that was from 98 or 99. Those have the seed of the Blackfires, which obviously starts with Aegon the Unworthy and his legitimizing all his bastards, including Damon Blackfire, and giving him his Blackfire sword. So there, sometime after the Hedge Knight, maybe while working on a Clash of Kings, then Elliot cuts in and says, No, no, he was done with the Clash of Kings. And unless it's <laughs> after a Clash of Kings, he goes back and not only decides there's going to be more books, that it needs to be more than that, that it needs to be more history. He fleshes out more kings. So right around the time a Clash of Kings was published, maybe a little bit after is when we start seeing the Blackfires themselves. We also see George planning the seeds for the Blackfire or Targaryen reveal in A Clash of Kings. We get Tyrion's referencing to two other hands of the kings for Ares II from A Clash of Kings, from a Clash of Kings Tyrion I, those being John Connington and Orton Merriweather. Or not, excuse me, those being John Connington and Owen Merriweather, Danny's vision of the Bummer's Dragon at the end of A Clash of Kings from Danny's fourth chapter, and finally here in, in Catelyn 2, we have our introduction to that turd red run at Connington. Now, interestingly, from what we understand as well from George, is that he, had, if you guys remember from our earlier episodes, we referenced that initial pitch letter a lot, and he had some sort of outline of how the story was going to go. Between Clash and Storm, George apparently drew up a second outline and a second idea of where the story was going to go going forward because he realized that he needed to expand the story a fair amount. And that outline has never been published and never been seen. It likely contains plot information from likely The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. But I think also we're seeing there, too, this idea that George is developing the backstory to incorporate the Blackfires into A Clash of Kings. And, you know, it's important that George is expanding the world building, expanding the history, doing all the things necessary to set up this reveal of young Griff as a potential Targaryen claimant to the Iron Throne early on, even if he doesn't have the name Blackfire established at this point in the story. So if George is just forming in his head the idea of a rogue Targaryen who perfectly fulfills the open-handed martial archetype of his class, leading an army dominated by the Reach, if he's just coming up with Daemon Blackfire, and you have this cross-fertilization going on between A Song of Ice and Fire and Duncan Egg, as hard as it is to say which is the chicken and which is the egg, it's not a stretch to say that Renly is how he is first working out this image, that Renly is is Daemon Blackfire as he's first born in George's mind, and then George later works the archetype out. And with that in mind, I think you can make the argument that Young Griff really is Renly 2.0. That Young Griff is the end game for this archetype. The perfect image of the high fantasy good king, tilted slightly askew, and then set on fire. Just like uh, Renly, Young Griff is handsome and charismatic. He has all the right teachers. He's going to swoop in at the end of the war just like Renly did at the start, promising to wrap up everything in a neat bow. 
And as with Renly and the Tyrells, you can see sinister puppet strings in the background, as young Griff's image comes direct from Varys, Mr. Shadow on a Wall himself. Clint argued when we did our episode on A Clash of Kings Tyrion 2, in which Varys gives his Shadow on the Wall monologue, Clint argued that Renly embodied that monologue, the Shadow on the Wall. And young Griff is Varys' answer to his own riddle, his own Shadow on the Wall. Give the people a show, a mummer's dragon, and they'll fill in the rest of the details on their own. Interestingly, though, structurally, young Griff seems to be taking the Stannis role at first, if you look at A Dance with Dragons. He's coming in from the sea to attack Storm's End, and now the army of the Reach is rushing to meet him, just like Renly rushed to meet Stannis. And from there, young Griff will march on the capital to take on the Lannisters, just like Stannis did. But the key detail is that the crowd will love him, as they never loved Stannis. That's what we see in the the House (laughs) of the Undying, the the crowd cheering for the Mummer's Dragon. So really, the actual Stannis 2.0 to young Griff's Renly 2.0 is Danny. Danny is mm-hmm. Danny is the Stannis in that situation mm-hmm. if young Griff is the Renly. Danny comes from Dragonstone with fire and blood like Stannis to make good on her claim. And that has a whole another layer of resonance to it with the Blackfire comparison in mind, because Danny, of course, is the Red Dragon. She's the main branch of House Targaryen, descended from the branch of Daron II. So it's as if Danny has been replaced, like preempted by the Blackfires when she shows up in Westeros. And the comparison to Damon via Renly is one of the many reasons I think young Griff is a Blackfire. That he's, he's just the next one. He's the next one embodying this idea of the good king who can skip past succession, but then it all falls apart. Renly isn't literally connected to Damon nor young Griff, but his rise and fall in A Clash of Kings can be seen as George coming up with those other characters. Renly is his dry run. Renly is the linchpin of all these images and ideas that George is trying to hold together. And, you know, as, as Brienne learns in A Feast for Crows, the bold young men who made her life miserable suffered some horrible fates at the Battle of the Blackwater. So we have the Knights of Summer with their perfect reach rebel- rebellious king running headlong into the horrors of war. Where have we seen that before? Well, go back to Duncan Egg. Go back to the Sworn Sword. Go back to the descriptions of the Battle of Redgrass Field. A great battle is a terrible thing, but in the midst of blood and carnage, there was sometimes also beauty. Beauty that could break your heart. I will never forget the way the sun looked when it set upon the red grass field. Again, the same set of images and ideas we've been talking about in this whole chapter. The perfect image of the past and youth and love and chivalry brought up against the hard realities of battle and death. That's how the Blackfire Rebellion ended. So naturally, it's what happens to Renly's boys too. Now, what does that suggest that's going to happen to young Griff and his men when Daenerys comes calling? Every time this cycle repeats, it gets bigger and deadlier. You have this, this young, perfect flower king who's going to fix everything, and then it all catches fire. So even even beyond the, the fun of saying which caused which, I think you can see George is, is working through that core idea across a bunch of different characters right around 1998, 1999. And it's, it's, it's interesting to trace it. Right. And you also, when you're, you're tracing some of these guys that are, are merging here, we're looking at Storm Lords and Reacher Lords that are going to, some of them are going to switch sides to Stannis at, at Storm's End. And then what happens after the Blackwater? Some of them are going to switch sides yet again back to Joffrey and, and, and to the Tyrells. What happens when young Griff shows up? We think that a lot of them are going to switch sides yet again to young Griff <laughs> because the, they're all, a, a lot of them, as you guys are pointing out so well in, in talking about the depth of this, a lot of these lesser lords and hedge knights and free riders are all flocking to Renly's banners because they think that he's the strong horse. He's the guy that's going to guide them to victory and to riches and to wealth and to power. Stannis, maybe he'll do the same for us. Maybe Joffrey will do that for us. Young Griff, he will definitely do that for us. But above it all comes Danny and the dragons. And that's, uh, you, you know, you, you brought up a great point about how Stannis is the proto-Daenerys coming to Westeros. Stannis is pretty 
fucking furious at Renly for going ahead and, and taking the throne ahead of him, of gathering the army up. What's Danny going to feel when you have Aegon sitting the Iron Throne before she even shows up to Westeros after she's done so much groundwork and character building and ruling that fucking awful city of Marine all by herself and doing all these things and learning how to rule and learning all these things. And yet this kid just basically just gets gifted the Iron Throne. Right. Like, it's the same emotions, that same, yeah, the same resentment, right? that same, no, it's mine. I earned this. And, you know, Stannis came in on his shadow, baby, his black shadow to kill Renly. But Danny has a black shadow all her own, of course. She is she has Drogon, the echo of Balerion, the Black Dread, and that's that's a much heavier shadow to cast. And was it saying in, in Daenerys Nine from A Dance with Dragons, the black shadow flew over the pit of the over Daznak's pit. It's very much similar. I'm not sure if George chose the word choice specifically to remind us of Stannis in the Shadow Baby, but he probably did at some level, right? I feel like a Daznak's okay. pit, also again, a gigantic party, right? Everyone's getting together, everyone's acting like they're getting along, <laughs> and then something breaks it all apart. In both cases, it's that sudden entry of the shadow. So yeah, I think it's it's not to discount Renly's and Stannis' story on their own right. It's, I think, very perfectly done, as we've been saying throughout this chapter, but you can see there's just like a microcosm of this larger whole that we'll, we'll see throughout, unfold throughout the rest of the story. Well, I think that absolutely wraps this episode up on A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 2. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I know this has been a longer episode than our normal episodes, but I think it's been um, great. I think this is the best treatment of this chapter that's ever been done ever in human history, besides George himself, of course, writing it back in 1998. Naturally, naturally. And thank you so much for, for coming on, Lady Gwen. We really appreciate it. We were looking forward to you. And you want to wanna plug Radio Westeros for all the listeners out there? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you can uh, find Radio Westeros at RadioWesteros.com. We have a brand new episode out uh, just now uh, all about uh, Hero's Journey in A Song of Ice and Fire. So in that episode, we're talking about all kinds of characters. Uh, a lot of our episodes are going to be about very specific characters. So like we talked about, we have episodes about Renly. We had an episode uh, about Stan way back that Jeff joined us on and uh, all these characters Catelyn and uh, pretty much Brienne everyone we've talked about uh, so you can find it there uh, right through our website or in all the usual places uh, Apple, Google, SoundCloud, iHeart you know wherever you find your quality audio podcasts uh, we're also on YouTube uh, Patreon follow us on Twitter for regular updates and um, thanks so much so much for letting me be here to talk about this with you guys yeah we had an absolute blast thank you so much for coming on and radio westeros was such an inspiration for us when we were first starting our podcast you know thank you thank you guys thank you so much for coming on it's been awesome thank you for saying that of course so as always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsadviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, the first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, <clears throat> Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, 
Lady Madeline Rivers to Sissiar of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolf's Wood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, What did the Five Fingers Say to the Face Penrose, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, and Sir Bodie McBoatface. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you guys and gals so, so much. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings John 3. Remember that John is in a Clash of Kings? Yeah, I kind of forgot too. As Lord, as Elsie Mormont's Great Ranging arrives at Craster's Keep, the happiest... Happiest? Is that the right word? Place in Westeros. Oh, God, this chapter. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's so, like, skin-crawling and awful. I can't wait. We're going to have a great time. It's going to be so much fun. It's also a really long chapter, too. I've, I've forgotten that John's chapters get especially lengthy and start picking up in terms of how good they are because this is an excellent, excellent John chapter. So, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to Lady Gwen for joining us. Please listen to Radio Westeros, and we will see you guys next time.